When early men would visit a watering hole, if they didn't watch their child, and it got snatched by a crocodile, our brains would create a painful but instructional memory. So it would never happen again. This idea of family that is so core with you, that rules your world, it's a biological lie. You don't have to accept it. I don't. You didn't even know you had a kid. You can thank me for that and start doing the job I'm asking you to do. Help you start a war. Is that what you think I want? That's so limited. I didn't take that football to start a war any more than I took your son to start a family. Taking your son got me the codes. The codes will get me the nukes, and the nukes will get me what I want today, tomorrow, and every day after that. What's that? Accountability. Because the truth is, Tom, to the world out there, I am the crocodile at the watering hole. Hi, I'm Madeline, and I'm a writer and a cultural critic. I'm Dave. I'm a comedian and actor, and welcome to Genre Reveal Party, where we talk about TV and movies through the lens of genre, its definition, its limits, and what we can learn by exploding them. Each episode, one of us chooses a TV show or movie to discuss with spoilers, because you don't need to have watched the thing to enjoy the podcast. We are in season one, Family Matters. And before we get to this week's movie, we've got some feedback from the fans. I have an Apple review, Apple podcast review, and Madeline, maybe after that you can read some tweets. Is that cool? Okay. Um, okay, so here's the review from May 30th, 2023. Keep it coming. Five stars. Yes to more long-form podcasts about TV and movies, please. Love these hosts' critical lens, sense of humor, and dynamic together. Have listened to eps where I both have and haven't seen the show slash film in question, and they hit great either way. Somehow, despite episodes being around two hours long, I am still left, I am left still wanting more, sort of a cry face emoji, excited <laughs> to keep following. Um, so yeah, as long as you use the word lens in your review and encourage us to go as long as possible, I think that's the kind of feedback that we want. <laughs> um, yeah, so I have some poll results from our Michael Douglas episode. Um, and you can't make this shit up. 69% voted for Basic Instinct as the best of the nice. trilogy. 31% voted for Fatal Attraction and a whopping 0 voted for disclosure. Um, not very surprised by that. And our listener, Rebecca Colesworthy, also thanked us for our, quote, important service uh, covering these movies. She writes, I spent my teens complaining about the omnipresence of Michael Douglas as the icky, improbable male lead. And I just wanted to say it was really a lot of fun to have my best friend Jasmine on the podcast. Um, she has requested that you email her at zero zero space is the place zero zero at gmail.com. 
if you were the other person who watched Foundation, or if you have important 90 day fiance UK hot takes. Um, and if you email us, we can also pass it along. I also, since reading that in our show notes, watched the entire first season of 90 Day Fiance UK. (laughs) It makes a weird double feature with a Fate of the Furious rewatch. Um, But yeah, so tweet us at Genre Reveal Pod. Leave us a review in Apple Podcasts or email Genre Reveal Party at Gmail and we might read your thoughts on the air. As I just said, this week we are talking Fate of the Furious the eighth and, for my money, best movie in the Fast and Furious franchise. We're going to touch on the rest of the franchise as we see fit, starting with a general overview so we can get timeline and characters down. I truly do not remember 70% of the plots of these movies, and it does not matter. <laughs> I just want to give you a an idea of when the main characters entered their roles on the team and a little bit of, oh, right, that's how we got here factor. Okay. So before that though, it is time to introduce our guests. Uh, my friend M Gonzalez is here. They are a fantastic, uh, organizer in Chicago, um, have done great things with Chicago abortion fund are currently fighting for pretrial fairness in the state of Illinois. M is there other, any other stuff that you want me to, that you want to take credit for, you should big up yourself. <laughs> well, for people that don't know, pretrial fairness or the Pretrial Fairness Act actually abolishes money bond in the state of Illinois um, or wealth based incarceration. Um, and we'd be the first state in Illinois to do that. And then, in terms of any other things I want to take credit for, um, I think it was managing Dave as a secretary um, organizer for a long period of time. So um, I want to go on my little power trip there. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited. I really love Fast and the Furious. Um, it has a lot of weird sentimental value to me, but we'll get into that um, in the podcast. And I'm hoping you will help us bring a a prison industrial complex abolitionist lens. To lens. Bring a lens. The story. Yeah. Hell yeah. Be sure there's a lens. Um, yeah. <laughs> Madeline, do you want to introduce Joe? Joe's my friend who I love. <laughs> We've only hung out in person like three times, but we've known each other for over a decade. And you are a an amazing scholar and thinker. Um, and that's what I have to say. Is there something that you want to say about yourself, Joe? We like old um, fashions. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Um, <laughs> I recently saw Madeline in Chicago, and we drank old fashions and warm rosé all weekend. Um, And I've left the warm rosé behind, but the old fashions have been my go-to drink of choice ever since. Um, I teach in uh, the gender studies program at Johns Hopkins and um, working on projects about 1970s American literature um, and a separate, well, linked project about the history of a clinic that ran out of Johns Hopkins um, in the 1970s, um, which was one of the foundational um, places where the medical gatekeeping of uh, gender transition was developed. (laughs) Yo, amazing. So as you can tell, and we're all huge car guys, of course, we all know everything about an engine and fucking NOS and whatever it is. (laughs) Um, Okay, here we go. 
Joe and M, please, and Madeline, of course, please feel free to chime in at any point. If you are unfamiliar with the Fast and Furious franchise, which I imagine we have some listeners who are, just let this wash over you. You don't need to catch it. When I mention Fate of the Furious, that is when I am sort of summarizing the plot of the movie we're actually talking about mostly, but you can't talk about these movies in isolation. So here we go. The Fast and the Furious is the first movie. It comes out in 2001, and all these movies come out two to five years, uh, you know, every two to five years after this, okay? So Paul Walker plays undercover cop Brian O'Connor, who meets Dominic or Dom Toretto, played by Vin Diesel. He also meets Dom's, and I say his lady, that's how I refer to my partner sometimes when partner Mm. feels weird and girlfriend feels too immature. I feel like Dom would refer to Letty Ortiz, played by Michelle Rodriguez, as his lady as well. Um, Dom's sister, Mia Toretto, played by Jordana Brewster. So he, he comes across all these people while investigating a group of unknown truck hijackers in the street racing world in L.A., which Dom is basically the king of. Too Fast, Too Furious, Brian and his old buddy Roman Pierce, uh, played by Tyrese, who from this moment on, except for the next movie, becomes responsible for about 90% of the franchise's jokes. <laughs> they At do all- an under... What is that? And mostly the worst ones. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, there aren't, they're all the worst jokes in in this franchise. But uh, they do an undercover job for US Customs to take down a drug lord. This is a theme plot wise. Ludacris plays Tej Parker, a car guy with an afro who becomes a tech guy with a beard by eight, Fate of the Furious. There is no Dom in this movie. Only movie with zero Dom, okay? Then, number three, Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift, much maligned. It is an almost totally separate narrative in Tokyo. Uh, The most important thing is we're introduced to Han, played by Sung Kang, whose whole thing is he is very cool and he is constantly eating chips. He is also, for my money, the only actor or character who radiates anything close to sex appeal in this franchise. Um, He seems to die in a car crash at the end of the movie. Dom makes a very short cameo in this movie. Mm-hmm. Number four. I just want to say, you know, I, yes. the only caveat I have with eight is it is the one movie after three that lacks Han's presence. And it's a real issue. <laughs> that is so real. And we can talk about that for sure. <laughs> Han is. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Number four is just called Fast and Furious. This is where the current team starts to form. Uh, yes, Brian is back. He's an FBI agent and he and Dom are working together reluctantly to avenge the murder of Letty and get another drug Lord. So are Tego Leo and Rico Santos, who are Dominican street racers who always work together and they appear inconsistently throughout the franchise, but they are in fate of the furious and they're just like fun little, uh, little Easter egg guys that that I felt like it was important to mention. Someone I would rather not mention uh, is Gal Gadot, who plays Giselle, who is an ex-Massad agent who very unfortunately develops a relationship with Han, who is too good for her, and also Free Palestine. Ooh, I mean, yes, Free Palestine, boo. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you really really booed at the wrong moment. (laughs) I, I just want to clarify, I am Free Palestine. 
M is a huge Mossad head, has so much Mossad gear. <laughs> and that's just um, okay. muscle cars, you know? <laughs> yeah. Just explain it. What's Gal Gadot's deal politically? She's a she's a she was I a know, member of the IDF, right? You know, Israeli for the, Defense Force. For the listener who doesn't know, that's she has that's twelve confirmed kills from her time in IDF um, wow. as an Israeli soldier. Um, yeah, okay. so I think that's yeah. the big thing. So I assume she's still a, a Zionist, right? She yeah. definitely is, but twelve. Confirmed was she responsible kills? for wow. the Imagine video at the beginning of COVID, or just a just a notable presence? No, she. I think she's responsible because she says the first, the first lyric. Um, well, yeah, and that's almost a worse crime than any of the uh, Zionist <laughs> stuff. In some that's ways, terrible. You know? Okay, so keep uh, it going, man. Th- important <laughs> thing is number four is set before Tokyo Drift. Okay, so there's a whole grip of movies here in the middle that are set chronologically before Tokyo Drift. Fast Five. The team assembles in Brazil to steal a bunch of money from a corrupt businessman named Hernan Reyes. The Rock appears as Luke Hobbs, a DSA, a DSS agent, aka fancy cop, hunting them down. They temporarily team up with him to take down Reyes. Hobbs also works with Elena Neves, very important character for us, a Brazilian cop who develops a thing with Dom. This movie is also before Tokyo Drift chronologically. In a mid-credits scene, we find out Letty is still alive. Mid-credits and credit scenes are huge in this franchise. Fast and Furious 6 is the name of the sixth movie. Dom is living with Elena before the crew teams up with Hobbs again to target an organization led by Owen Shaw and including Letty. Because she has amnesia and is part of this, you know, other crew. Gotta have amnesia in the franchise. Yes, right. Right. Somebody has uh, to. So before Tokyo Drift, it's it, it's the most one of the earliest signs that we're in fact in the universe of a soap opera, among other genres. Yes. <laughs> yes. Damn. Oh, Very true. This is good. I'm liking Joe. Joe's fucking bringing the heat right now. Okay. Um. So this movie is also before Tokyo Drift. Uh, the credit scene, probably the most legendary end credit scene in the franchise we revisit the site uh, and moment of han's car crash in tokyo and out steps from the other car owen shaw's older brother deckard shaw played by jason statham and when i say shaw going forward it's deckard it's jason statham okay forget owen for our purposes right he's even in fate of the furious don't care shaw is jason statham Furious 7, Shaw goes hunting the team to get revenge for them putting his brother into a coma. But the team's on a totally different mission. They talk to a dude named Mr. Nobody, played by Kurt Russell, who represents an entity simply called the Agency, and sent them on a mission to steal a hacking device called God's Eye from a terrorist played by Jaimon Huntsu. Uh, Natalie Emanuel, who I guess was in Game of Thrones, plays Ramsey, who invented God's Eye. She joins the team. But most importantly, possibly to the entire franchise, is that during production on Furious 7, Paul Walker died in a car accident unrelated to the filming. So his brothers became his stand-ins, and a good portion of the movie becomes a sort of metatextual tribute to him, long drawn-out musical sequences. Also important, his character, Brian, does not die. 
in the fast universe. Mm-hmm. Okay. There are there are empty seats left for him around the tables. Uh his his car drives up to the the family dinner uh at various points. So now we are at the movie we are discussing, The Fate of the Furious. Dom and Letty are living and racing in Cuba when he is confronted <coughs> with a demand from a terrorist hacker named Cypher, played by Charlize Theron, to work for her. How? Surprise! Dom had a kid with Elena, and Cypher kidnapped them both. So Dom has to turn on his team to get a bunch of weapons for Cypher, a huge electromagnetic pulse generator, a nuclear football, which I should have realized is just a briefcase with nuke codes, but I did not realize that until this movie. A Russian nuclear submarine is also among these weapons. Okay, okay. wait, wait, wait. The team... Wait, yes, though, yes, man. Yes. Come on. He didn't... Dom had a kid with Elena. Elena had a kid. With... He impregnated Elena, and then she... You know, didn't tell him about it, right? It's a surprise. It's a yeah. reveal. Yeah, but she was supposed to after him and Letty got back from the honeymoon, but then she was intercepted by Cipher, and like that's where the more soap opera y stuff starts. Yes, yes. and she um, explains. Like, <laughs> she explained that she found out that she was pregnant right when Letty came back. Right when they yeah, found her out memory that she, turned back she was alive. Right? right. So, so I'm just saying that, like Dom didn't. That's know. very important. Yes, it's important. very important. He didn't We're know. already nibbling at the edges of family. it's about loyalty, man. So, yeah. you know. Yeah, family. absolutely. Yeah. Keep summarizing. Um, I'm sorry. But. No, 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 no. Don't be sorry. Okay. The team works with Shaw and Hobbs, which is a big deal because they're not only was Shaw fucking hunting them in the last movie, but Shaw and Hobbs hate each other. Plus, they're working with Mr. Nobody and another agency guy who's like Mr. Nobody's little uh you know gumshoe sidekick um and roman nicknames him little nobody played by clint eastwood's son scott eastwood uh and they're all trying to stop dom and cypher okay so the whole time secretly we find out that dom was laying out a plan to kidnap his son back from cypher with the help of tago and rico uh and shaw's mom queenie shaw played by Helen Mirren. Unfortunately, Cypher Stooge, played by, I don't even know his name, a red-haired guy from Game of Thrones. I didn't see Game of Thrones. Uh, He shoots Elena before Dom is able to save her. Dom turns on Cypher, kills the red-haired guy, and Shaw brings Dom's son to the New York rooftop where they all share a meal. And Dom names the kid Brian after Paul Walker's character, who is only retired and not dead in this universe. So very quickly, next three movies is one is a diversion. Fast and Furious presents Hobbs and Shaw. Hobbs and Shaw team up with Shaw's sister and fight Idris Elba. F9 back to the main franchise. Cypher wants to take over all the computers and bombs in the world. So the team stops her with the help of a revealed to be alive Han and Dom's brother Jacob, played by John Cena. Also, Ludacris and Tyrese, a.k.a. Tej and Roman, go to space in a car. Fast X, which is still in theaters. Jason Momoa plays Dante Reyes, the son of the villain in Fast Five, and he's more evil than Cypher. Okay. Part of how he's evil is that he's seemingly gay, or at least androgynous, which is something that <laughs> Jason you. Momoa has like played up really outrageously in all the press around the movie is that like part of how you know he's evil is that he's not a real man 
Oh, yes. And also, but, I, say, I, I say with heavy scare quotes. I want to be clear. Yes, yes. <laughs> like he's in opposition to the family, like to the nuclear family that they've set up. Like he's queer coded, and then also like he's like, I'm going to ruin your family, and it's like whatever. Yeah. Speaking of ruining M, would you uh, turn off your notifications <laughs> on your uh, phone? Yes, that was on my computer. But yes. <laughs> Um, uh, but yes, as Em and I saw Fast X in the theater, uh, recently, and as Em shouted, uh, he's queer coded. So that was, that was Em's take on, um, everything Jason Lila's character. Yes. Every, everything he wears, everything he owns. <laughs> so Amazing. one word you'll note, I didn't, I, I maybe said it once as a sidebar, but didn't really emphasize in this recap is family. Okay. This is the single word most associated with this franchise. And when we decided Madeline and I, that family was going to be our theme this season, I knew we had to do a fast and furious movie. We almost did fast five, which was my favorite until I watched fate a couple of weeks ago and fell in love. And I actually think one five, eight. So the fast and the furious fast five and fate of the furious is a decent ish shortcut through the series if you want to hit the major plot points and get an overall sense of the franchise. But here's a message from my friend Allie, who Em and I saw Fast X with about that. Okay, so Allie says, Oh my God, Fast and Furious, your shortcut. I'm here to make my case for seven. As a piece of art, I think Vin Diesel and Paul Walker are so woven into the fabric of the franchise that you can't separate Paul Walker's death from the arc of the series. It's his finale, Bry's Farewell, The Last Quarter Mile ends an era for the familia and has that weirdo cgi shit and that goofy Wiz khalifa song that probably had grown men tearing up in the theater (laughs) and i will say after reading this that if you had to narrow this franchise down to one movie it's seven it's i just think it's not as fun of a watch and as you might be able to tell, I have very little respect for the canon of these movies. I'm going very much on watchability and my own preferences. Happily, happy to talk of other people are more into that, though. That's really um, cool, because I shortcutted and I did one five eight, but then last night I did seven. So I feel yeah, completely Yeah, you affirmed. did it. You've yeah. seen the whole thing. That's Absolutely. great. Although I really want to see the Jason Momoa stuff. Because I watched the trailer. It's, 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 he's pretty <laughs> great in it. It changes the tone dramatically, Absolutely. but it's, yeah, it's good. <laughs> um, okay, so speaking of watchability, I do want to give a quick shout out to the director of this movie, F. Gary Gray, who also directed Straight Out of Compton, Friday, Set It Off, and The Italian Job. He also directed music videos by Ice Cube, It Was a Good Day, yes. Outcast, Miss Jackson. And TLC's Waterfalls video. Um, And I hope we can talk about it in the chat, but I think FGG's sense of story sets this movie slightly above the others in the franchise. Uh, I would love to talk about those storytelling and technical achievements and how they tweak genre in general and the Fast and the Furious genre specifically. Um, I will also just throw a couple of general topics that could guide our conversation. So my general question is like, what does this movie have to say about X and not fast X? Just what does this movie have to say about family? What does it have to say about cops uh, or legality and illegality? Mm -hmm. Uh, What does it have to say about restorative justice? Let's not forget that Shaw 
as far as all they know, killed Han, who was a family member uh, prior to the events of this movie. Uh, What does it have to say about capitalism? And what does it have to say about nationalism? And with that, let's chat. So we know how many movies Madeline has seen. I'm curious, Em and Joe, are both of you... I'm I'm fully I've seen the whole library. Are both of you in the same position? I I have seen them all. I watched 10 2 days ago. Um and that was the last one that I was lacking. <laughs> Amazing. I have seen the first, the second, third, 7th, 8th, ninth, and I actually saw 10th twice um so day after we've seen it i saw it again <laughs> whoa just by yourself or with someone with someone um so with, with my family with my family with my familia okay. um and nice. yeah it's it's so interesting because i saw tokyo drift um last week with my friend who has seen all of the movies and she's like this is a throwaway film i don't like it and my hot take is like if they had a different actor that played um, Bama Boy. I'm like, I think this would actually be one of their strongest films because I love the the backdrop of Tokyo. I love Han's like mentorship. It just wasn't sold to me like why why Han would be mentoring this kid from Alabama that has a poor under the hairline. It would have been so much better if Bow Wow was the lead, exactly, as opposed to like his occasional sidekick in that film. <laughs> Damn, I 100% that's so real. agree. Yeah. Um, that reminds me, Alia Ansari did tweet us and say that her favorites are two and three. So I do think there's, I think from a pure entertainment standpoint, two and three are very underrated. Three has the best song by far by the teriyaki boys. Um, <laughs> too Fast, Too Furious is like one of the funniest. Um, yeah, I think they're both. Uh, yeah, I think those are both great. But that's a, kind of amazing, Em, that you have four, five, and six just waiting for you whenever you <laughs> can see them. Waiting for me right after this podcast, baby. Hell yeah, baby. <laughs> um, so so I have one on you. I have five. Tim. You do? Which, so you, wait, I, but you only mentioned four. You said one, five, eight, and seven. Right, but you didn't see five, Em, right? So, oh, oh, nice, nice, nice. Yes. Yes. And just I'm really good. excited about that. Okay, sorry. Just <laughs> no, it's the spirit. For each other, you know, like in our knowledge gaps. So, yeah. exactly. Oh, I was going to say it's the spirit of the franchise to be competitive and we're kind of racing oh. to see who gets the most no, movies. Not at all. But I'm wondering about, for both of you, what what's your um, like history with with these movies? Like how did you all coerced me into watching them okay so that's my (laughs) (laughs) that was my introduction but joe like how did you get started here it's kind of surprising to me and i love it it's like a it's a wonderful surprise that you you love these movies i had watched the first one shortly after it came out when i would have been you know 12 years old which would have been just i think prime moment for thinking that this sort of movie was really awesome. And so I didn't see it in theaters, but I did 
you know, rent the DVD um, from Blockbuster Video and watch that. Um, and, you know, it was peak Vin Diesel moment in a lot of ways around that era. Um, and I enjoyed it and never did not think of it again for a solid dozen years. Um, and then I had... In 2015, I'd moved to Baltimore from Vancouver. I was settling in here, um, finding new friends, new community, and also just like in the stage of that process, spending a lot more time at evenings at home than I normally would. So, of course, looking for more movies and TV series and things to watch to um, bridge that moment. And I remember... um, seeing a couple friends who were very spatially distanced from me debate the their rankings of the franchise on mm-hmm. Facebook. And that was the the press that I needed to like say, okay, other people are are excited about the stakes of these. I need to get into it. And over the course of like you know probably not much more than two weeks, I watched uh the the seven that existed to that point. Um, and was feeling very excited by it. Um, but then it was, it was when the fate of the furious was in theaters that I like just went over unambiguously to being a gigantic booster for the franchise. Um, (laughs) so you saw this movie in the theater. I saw the theater, this movie in the theater. Um, I took my dear friend, uh, Arash, who was at the time in the final months of completing his PhD in philosophy, writing on Hegel, and he'd never <laughs> gone he'd been in America for like 10 years. He'd never seen like an American action movie in the theater. And I thought, okay, we're doing this. Mm-hmm. And he was wildly skeptical. It took like several glasses of wine and a lot of a lot of <laughs> effort to convince him that this was going to be worthwhile. Um and we had an absolutely phenomenal time. There were several dinner parties at his house afterward where he insisted on having me help him boot up the movie so that he could show people the opening race sequence through Cuba. It was <laughs> wildly beautiful um, bonding moment. Um, and I've been a devotee of this film ever since. Oh, oh, I love that. I love it. I Is love it your favorite? I'm- For sure. Whoa, I love what a amazing. millennial response that was too. Is like I started by like renting it at Blockbuster, and then there were debates on Facebook, and mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> it's wonderful, and it spans over so much time. I really like it. How about you, M? Like, when did it get started for you? Yeah, so um, my introduction to the Fast and Furious franchise is actually through Blue Crush with Kate Bosworth because the trailer would always be at the beginning of that movie. And I remember just like kind of being fascinated by it. Um, So it was like Tokyo Drift and then Too Fast, Too Furious where we have Devin Aoki's character who is definitely a part of like my sexual awakening. um, (laughs) Like everyone in Fast and Furious, like Ludacris and Devin Aoki, I'm like, oh my God. Um, But when I actually started (laughs) watching the films or at least being more attuned to them was in the course of the pandemic through... um, my housemate and dear friend Maggie Civit, who works at um, WBEZ, um, and essentially we just kind of started watching the movies. And she's like, "These are actually really great." And entered like something about the universe just really kind of drawn her into it. And then soon we were driving out to Gurney to actually like see drift races and like car detailing and stuff. And 
it took, I know, like total like left, uh, like we started kind of getting immersed IRL in like car world because, you know, there's the car shows in Humboldt Park where we had lived and we had started interviewing people about like their fascination with cars. And it's so interesting to see kind of the parallels between like how this is like a, a big family thing. And there is someone that judges all of these cars. So, like that's really accurate. Um to the film series and I'll never forget um being in Gurney and then being in Humboldt and seeing the same guy like having a child follow him around like a young person trying to also learn how to like rate these cars and so it felt very reminiscent of like Lil B's trajectory Lil Brian's trajectory now into like you know you pass it on to the next generation the next generation is supposed to be better and so um I feel like that's what I've really gotten from the series so far is like it's a really big like familial connection because I you know I consider my my friend Maggie family and then also just like I kind of love how they're like they don't really have like an allegiance to anyone like but their connections like they don't really have like an allegiance to the state or to like police in a lot of ways um and so yeah I feel like that's kind of like where it brought me we we did one night try to hunt down a few illegal drift races in the suburbs and we found them through Instagram and so like every time one would get busted we would go to like another like we were like I think like in Lyle Illinois at some point and so, like, <laughs> we're just like driving for hours and like seeing all of these cars and it's so interesting to like think about like the types of people this movie attracts because it's also I think one of the series where um most of his audience are also black and brown people as well. And so I think a lot about that um, just in terms of like the reason why it's had so much success is because like a lot of people have seen themselves and their cultures represented. Like you, they visit like so many countries. Like I'm from, from Cuba um, and just like seeing Cuba in the eighth and like that they actually went there meant so much to me. Um, and I was like my, my little, like my abuela used to be very much like into like, Cuban pride. And I was like, Oh, I'm just like her in that regard. Cause I've got really excited seeing that and Fate of the furious and like, I don't know. I just have some, I'm going to stop talking so we can all talk. To no, I love it. I wanted <laughs> I to it. ask you about Cuba. Cause I know you went yeah. to Cuba recently. Yeah. I will make a side note and say, I think the only um, race that is not represented in these movies is blonde people um, until <laughs> cypher. Uh, really, I mean, Elena is kind of blonde, so that that kind of take. But genuinely, she's a die you know, job. Yeah, women are not well represented in these movies, but to the extent that they are represented at all, they are aggressively brunette. not blonde. Yes. Uh, yeah, and so, but yeah, so obviously, this movie starts in Cuba. I couldn't help noticing on my like third rewatch with the commentary <laughs> that this was, um. The movie is bookended in fucking communist countries. We've got mm. Cuba on the front end and Russia on the back end. Uh, I don't, you know, I think that's more of a like I mean, kind of isn't that neat sort of thing. But M not currently communist. You know what I'm saying though. Yeah, um, but they're portrayed in, in vastly different lights, right? Like Cuba, yes. um, is a place of like resiliency of sort of like. In, in independent ingenuity where even the people who are sort of like criminal are potentially convertible to family as Dom demonstrates and as um, the Lone Shark character whose name I'm now forgetting sort of like when he shows up later in the film that the strength of that, that. Firm. <laughs> whereas like what we get of Russia is like a rogue separatist military installation um, that it, is 
what exactly like the goals of its like separatism are never quite explained um, <laughs> yeah. like, they don't they, they presumably it's unclear whether they have allegiance to the russian state or but are like extra military or whether they're anti-russian state and are some break-off faction either way they have nukes and that's weird yeah. Uh, yeah. right and it well, really and just doesn't Gary matter. Gray in the commentary, this is purely. I mean, I'm very. It, it's going to be tough for me. To, I, I'm all. You know, I'm going to keep drifting back to aesthetics. I think and craft because I love that, and I like think there are very really interesting like literary and political things going on. But so much of me is just in love with like the storytelling and in the commentary F Gary Gray talks about how he wanted even the look of those two locations to be very different. In Russia you've got like all the blue, you're seeing the sky, you're seeing the ice and it's very stark contrasted with Cuba at the beginning which is color, it, there's a lot of yellow, it's very like full of life and sort of popping out at you and he you know he describes it as just like to have a contrast. Um, but yeah, ju- I think he even underlines that contrast, Joe, with um, yeah, with the actual movie making itself. But Emma, tell us about Cuba, okay? What about this movie? You know, how does your recent trip to Cuba, uh, uh, you know, affect your viewing of this movie? Well, and it's so interesting because it's like um, going to Cuba, and I also went with that same friend that loves Fast and Furious. And so, of course, we did a car tour across the island and, like, something that is really amazing about Cuba is like they're always very much like yeah American imperialism sucks like we don't like the U.S. so like um and Joe I really appreciate you kind of pointing out like how they kind of show this resiliency because I actually think that's really accurate about Cuban people is that they are very resilient and they are very connected to each other and like there's not one street you can walk down in Havana specifically which is where I was um and like people are always talking to each other they're always helping out um their neighbors like the be- the scene like where the basket is coming down from like the window that's happening all the time and like people are giving each other like playing cards food um you know like masculinity also looks very different in Cuba in a lot of ways like just seeing men like dance with each other and be with each other which is why I really liked that scene where Dom is like you can keep your car um your respect is enough um sorry that was my bad dom toretto accent um yes i want all of us to do a dom by the end of this recording please (laughs) just our best dom toretto like i'm part of me like i'm like his voice is getting more it's getting deeper somehow like i don't know more something it's getting more something dom's balls slowly drop further and further and further throughout the franchise that's really what the nos is um but yeah yeah But the Cuban Nost was amazing um, when Letty was like, you know. Um, but yeah, I think it was really great to but see. There's something weird about how Toretto's age, right? Yeah. Because I, yes. I just think like, little Brian ages like 12 years in mm-hmm. like the in like three years of in movie time. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Like eight and ten. And his skin changes from Vin Diesel's color to deeply Afro-Caribbean yes. in Fast oh, X. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, okay, I noticed that too, and I was like, I'm like, I'm like, Brian's Afro-Latino now, and he wasn't initially. <laughs> yeah. He looks like Dom's son in this movie. He does, yeah. Like, actually, yeah. Yeah, but I think, like, the other note just about 
thinking through Cuba and like just like the family um that I just thought was really interesting is just like well one you know like thinking about like the restorative aspect of like what anyone can really be like people are redeemable um and I think I really liked that quality of Fast and Furious and I think maybe I can only notice it if I watched it at this moment in time like where I am with my political development but it's this concept of like our cars can do the talking and like we can walk away and like all conflict is tied up in a bow and we can like let things go and um to kind of throw it back to Tokyo Drift like you know, um, I call, I, I keep forgetting his name. I think it's like Sean, but I, I want to call him Bama Boy. But Just call him Bama Boy. We Bama Boy. Well, that's his that's his AIM username, which is how I. Um, oh, nice. Which is like the only <laughs> thing I remember from that film. Yeah. He's like messaging like the the hot girl in class, and his like username is like Bama Boy. But like he also, you know, he goes to his father, and he's like, "I have to clean up my own mess. Like I got myself into this. You shouldn't. You shouldn't." have to do anything and he goes and his um, dad is convinced by that it's just like yeah, yeah you, can, you, can take on those, <laughs> yeah. you should you should in fact take on the yakuza alone <laughs> <laughs> i mean if that were my child i'd be like all right see ya <laughs> yeah yeah he takes on the yakuza and he's like we're just gonna race on the mountain for it which is like all right we'll listen to this 17 year old white teenager but yeah his father is like really compelled of being like all right we'll trust you but yeah you know like the thing kind of like the theme of like this is an alternative way to conflict and like solving out your problems like we're just going to drive for it because it's not about the car it's about who drives the car or whatever right yeah and i think you're right to 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 note the sort of the element that joe also talked about of like any enemy can become and in fact by the by these movies just continuing on does become a friend well uh, not just a friend but family um and i think so i want i want to talk about like restorative justice versus wrestling um because i think with the rock the rock who obviously became came to i, I want to say came to power came to prominence <laughs> um in who knows if he runs for president in 2024 maybe came to power uh via wrestling he like conquered the world of wrestling right uh does a bunch of movies by the time he does this movie he's well established as an entertainer but then um in Hobbs and Shaw which is the movie right after this uh Roman Reigns who's a current wrestler plays a member of his family in F9 John Cena is in the movie a former wrestler these are all like the guys at the top of the wrestling food chain, but also my understanding of wrestling, which is small is that you can play a heel so well in wrestling that the crowd actually starts to cheer for you, Mm -hmm. which is not what a heel is supposed to do. The heel is supposed to alienate people, make them boo him. But there are such good heels that these fans become smart and they're like, we fucking love this guy. And I think there is a way in which, you know, at its most surface level, obviously, you know, the answer, this movie, these movies are not revolutionary movies, but I do think they have revolutionary like elements. But, you know, if we're giving them just the surface level credit, it's like, oh, they're letting people be heels until they do a face turn at some point and then become part of the family um but but 
do yeah do you think there are genuinely restorative elements in this movie i well i mean like look at cypher now in the 10th film like cypher shows up on dom and letty's doorstep and is like the enemy of my enemy is you and it's like cypher did something that's probably one of the most unforgivable things and like has killed elena and like kid like was willing to kill a baby baby will be um who by the way part of me is like we're gonna need to talk about some trauma practices that little B's going to need. <laughs> like we're going to yes. need to talk about, but like, you know, um, I think they're easily positioning Cypher to do that and to be part of that. And so um, I think when we're thinking about just even transformative justice and something and restorative justice and something that I feel like gets lost in the conversation is that these things do take time and quite literally accidentally, like just coincidentally by filming time, it's like, yeah, like years are going by and we are seeing these people be impacted in certain ways and are kind of like shifting their thoughts. I personally think that like a cipher redemption arc is in the cards. It's going to be really interesting to see how they do that. But like, I think these films accidentally like introduce different pathways and worlds and like relationship building things. And it's like, yeah, this actually does make sense. Like when you're in proximity or like in the same world or in relation to people that like, you know, Dom is very much like about his values and tangibly living out his values. It's like, yeah, you are kind of, I don't want to say seduced because let's be honest, Vin Diesel is kind of like an un- can I say like unfuckable character? <laughs> like, you can say whatever it. you think. Like, he's kind of like, but like, yeah, every time I feel like he's talking to a woman, they like kind of want to have sex with him. But like, I like Han, no. Han, I think really holds it down and Tej, in my opinion, is like the sexiest characters in the series. But like, you know, like he, you are kind of seduced by like, oh yeah, like, you know, in the 10th movie, um, every cop is a, a barbecue and a beer away from being part of the family and like turning their back on law enforcement. And it's like, you know, I think they make a compelling case. I would be really interested to hear Joe's thoughts um, ab- about it as well. But yeah. I mean, there's there's like th- there's three things I just want to pick up on. Yeah. Um, I think hopefully we'll have space to like get into the weeds with all of them. So the first is like, is Cypher. Um, and to what degree she's like going to be redeemable. Because in, in, in 10, you know, her as a sort of like ally character is totally dependent upon um, Jason Momoa just being, you know, so much more evil. You know, she literally says, I thought I was the devil. And in fact, it's him. Um, (laughs) And so, and like, that's the basis for her redemption. She hasn't done anything to like, you know, prove herself yet, but I think that that's coming. And I think that a lot of that is going to develop out of, or I hope that a lot of that is going to develop out of like a more attention to her motivations in eight which are really underplayed, but like have this like weird anti-state anarchist um, investment in sort of like usurping um, power. Uh, And it, I want to turn like return hopefully a bit later to like the moment where, you know, she's kind of cornered and they're asking, you know, well, what, what, what her end plan was, who are you going to sell the weapons to? And she's saying, no one i was going to use them to hold the superpowers accountable um and like she if they step too far i'll blow them up like that's kind of her her motivation i want to i want to get into that a bit more um the other two other things i wanted to just like hold on to is like yeah the, the issue the question around cops that you raised um like all law enforcement is like one step away from like grabbing a corona and like becoming a criminal <laughs> Um, 
and that's you know that's the 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 film is in, like from the first film it's in some ways like a point break homage um and it wants to like play with this idea that you know you could have enough fun that you could become a cab um like, oh yeah <laughs> i love that i and, love that <laughs> but like but the, the film then twists around this um and like because all criminals are potentially usable by the police is like one of the other great lessons of the franchise, right? That like again and again and again, um, as they break laws at like a more and more outrageous international interstellar scale, um, (laughs) they end up working for just like larger and larger police departments, right? Right. With this like mythical agency that has no actual grounds in any you know allegiance to law or democracy but exists <laughs> really to be like the ultimate cop um right and they and, don't need any of the details on that right it's just <laughs> and so like the like the, the the tension between like when it's okay to be a cop that flips to criminality and when it's okay to be a criminal that like flips to being part of the police is like at play throughout the series and Madeline and I were talking the other day and I sort of, I, I said to them, like, as much as a franchise about family, like, I think it's a franchise about when it's okay to be a cop. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And when it's okay to be a top. <laughs> hey, what did you say, Dave? I, I was just saying, I think that's such a good phrasing yeah. of that because when it's okay to be a cop, I've been thinking of it in terms of the obvious, like, dichotomy. Yeah of criminals and cops but it but it really is and i think the reason because it's like if this movie were like actually fucking a cab like they wouldn't have i mean madeline you did the research but like hundreds of millions of dollars in budget i'm watching the commentary f gary gray is like oh that shot of the submarine that was hundreds of thousands of dollars in gas to power the sub, you know what I mean. So like, no one's gonna give them that money if this movie's genuinely anti-cop. But I think that there is a, especially American, like outlaw thing yeah. that the movie plays on, and that's where, fortunately, through the cracks, a little bit of genuine, like, abolitionist sentiment gets in. Yeah, and it's really interesting because, like, I really like what joe had to say about that sentiment of when it is okay to be a cop because if you think about just the way that we're socialized like that's that's like the central question to everything like where people think it's okay to police each other like their communities their neighbors and i think it's something that like i been now i'm going to get into like my personal feelings i feel like not a lot of people that even identify as abolitionists ask themselves of like how am i actually showing up every day and living out these values um of like not aligning or policing other people or people in movement spaces. And like, it's something that um, Dave and I talk a lot about in terms of like, are we actually, are we actually walking the walk or driving the car that we're seeing that we're driving? I also feel like um, I I definitely also want to get into um, and this is, this is not as even serious as the questions that Joe said. We have to talk about the orange Lamborghini. <laughs> oh, <laughs> hell yeah. What? The $1 million Lamborghini. <laughs> yeah. What was the third thing, Joe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was the third thing? Um, you have a third thing. I wanted to pick up on 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 what Em said about Vin Diesel's unfuckability and just oh, good, good. like that. <laughs> but, but like, no, but it's real. Like one of the things that's amazing about these films is how little sex is in them. Yes. 
like for like a gigantic, you know, 10 and a half parts, like billions of dollars, like in budget and like tens of billions of dollars in profits franchise, like there is barely a sex scene across the franchise. Um, and like, and, and, you know, I have a lot to say about this and, you know, ba- basically the races are like the substitute, right? But like actual sex is wildly removed from the franchise. <laughs> and it's yeah. almost like, it's almost like you're kind of getting into to Cronenberg territory with Crash, you know, yes. <laughs> where it's like they're turned on by the races a little bit. And also like Cypher and Letty, I think had so much more chemistry in the 10th film, like it out than like Dom and Letty have and, like across the the series. Dude, yeah. I haven't seen 10. I'm I I'm not spoiler reverse, but just the trailer alone, um, what they show of that like beautiful choreography and just like throwing each other against walls. And it was like the Michael Douglas trilogy was so erotic with yeah. no cringe. Yeah. I agree. I, I'm glad you brought up Crash M because I literally said to a friend that like what I want to make happen is like a triple feature, which is Crash, um, Fate of the Furious, and to ten. And just like Oh my god. So good, Joe. Uh, I, I, but, I, well, but like the car as like the prosthetic extension of the body where you can just like show sex on screen because it is not the body itself is like very important to this franchise as it is to like these weird techno fetishistic body horror movies. <laughs> and I, it's so interesting because I think something that Dave brought up is like they really introduced the like in they kind of reintroduced back like the actually being inside of the car and like seeing the driving happening and like that hadn't happened. And like, I think Dave was saying like a number of films. Um, well, yeah, at fast X, because my partner hope her favorite thing in these movies is when they show the NOS inside the car, <laughs> just like going around, uh, you know, the most, like the most health class sperm traveling through the vast deferens ish thing. Um, and they do that in Fast X, and I think it had been since. Well, they didn't do it in five, I don't think, and it had been since at least then. Yeah. In 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 seven, we have the substitute with the uh, whatever the poor man's turbo or whatever he calls it, where he has the pop bottle uh, tab that's in. That's in this movie. Yeah, I, I, I meant eight. That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, we don't get the but we do get the like zoom in on the like rip cord removal. Yes. The engine heating up. Exactly. (laughs) Well, I want to give everyone permission not to get to things later. If you have something you want to get, let's not just make a list. Let's not make a table of contents. Feel free to hit us with, should we start with, uh, I feel like we did a lot of the cop stuff, Joe, but uh, uh, Vin Diesel's unfuckability. Do you have more to say about that? I actually have something to say about that about yeah it. like well it's so interesting because it's like we're talking about the family in these roles and then i feel like you have lenny and dom naturally step into these roles as like the matriarch and patriarch of this like larger family and part of me is just kind of like i'm like it's so interesting how it's like almost like these roles or these structures are bigger than them as people or their desires but it's like actually passing on like the legacy of that and so part of me is like i don't think it's intentional but i have i feel like i've seen so many relationships where it's like just kind of devoured of like anything because it's like a role that you kind of are stepping into. And so I kind of think about it more as like their physical roles, but yeah, I don't know. Um, I guess I will end that thought on like 
Letty wrapped her thighs around Cypher's head, and I thought I was going to explode. Um, and then, um, and then uh, Gail Gadot came back, and I was like, huh, no. It was like a, a really big, greedy bisexual moment where I was like, I'm never going to be satisfied by these films. But yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I want to say just, you know, clearly the recipe of the all of these movies after the first one, right? And I is um, just that they're international films, right? And so I do think that the sex has to be kind of like um, kept at the level of allegory, right? And um, that a lot of, that's a lot of how I think we should be interpreting this film, especially the racialization of, Vin Diesel, and I don't want to like tie that to his unfuckability. Like I completely agree, he's unfuckable, (laughs) but like his weird (laughs) ambiguous. It's like it's it's actually like winking in the same way that it's winking at us about the fact that Paul Walker is dead, but they're not going to let him die, right? It's winking at us about like you know, oh, they're going to Cuba, but and he has a is it his nephew or cousin? His cousin, his primo, but. That doesn't mean he's Cuban, right? Like, right, right, the, right, right. You know, they might just be both traveling to Cuba. We don't quite know. So it teases us in these ways of like, what is his ethnicity? <laughs> like, well, what except is his, his cousins deal? there? What? Except but his cousins. But his cousin isn't necessarily Cuban. They don't. They don't give us that. That's uh, confirmation, right? I, I or thought. You think, that, like, he, do you think this was like li- an ethnicity he's living reveal? there. So, like, I mean, I, <laughs> the cousin's living in Havana, right? Um, and so I thought yeah. it was like, heavily implied that you know the cousin. I just thought he had an American accent, the cousin. Um, so I was I seeing mean, him as this outsider. I just don't think it's going to give us that information about Dom, right? But Dom and also so, speaks Spanish as well. We also meet Abuelita in ten. Okay, yeah. Oh yeah, Rita Moreno, but um, is in is in Fast Ten, which is phenomenal because she's like ninety something. But yeah. yeah, I did see that in the trailer, but I think that that's part of his like his appeal internationally as a star, right? Is that um, that he is non-specific and like that is part of his lore, right? Like I guess he. he the way that Vin Diesel became famous was this movie that he like wrote and directed and starred in called, which has an unfortunate name, multifacial. <laughs> oh, I thought they um, But yeah, but it is about this actor who uh, auditions for in like a variety of different like eth- ethnicities and like minority roles and things like this. And it's about his, um, his versatility kind of as as an actor in some ways i mean i don't i haven't seen the film so i've just i'm just telling you what i understand but that's very much his own kind of self mythology and he refuses to he may may know who his biological father is or he may not but he withholds that information i think as a as a part of this right like this is part of the kind of lore of vin diesel but i think that that's um that's definitely a huge part of why he's so successful across different, like while this is a very nationalist film or f- 
film franchise in some ways, like it has a huge international appeal for, for these reasons. And, um, so the sexlessness of, of the franchise is, is really important. Um, because it just wouldn't, it wouldn't play in, in lots of different markets otherwise. Right. Um, they have to be like solidly PG 13, um, super violent, super gun focused, super car focused, but can't have nudity can only have like kind of this, you know, these like up the skirt shots or something like that. But it's all about like its marketability, I think is like, uh, um, a global box office success and not however patriotic and American, these movies kind of code as they're, they're designed to appeal to that international market. Right. So, and even the violence needs to be like, you know, visited upon property and especially vehicles, but very rarely upon bodies. Um, Mm, And there's like all, there's amazing moments in the franchise where like they give you a kind of like voice of God and no people were harmed. The, the Fast X, the- when there's the bomb that goes off in Rome, and they're like, fortunately, no no <laughs> people were killed. Yes. We're, like, led to believe that it's, like, a big enough bomb that it would, like, level, you know, a substantial part of Rome. And then we're told, if it's in the water, it'll only be a tenth as bad. Which is still gigantically bad, given mm-hmm. the scale of destruction we're told to. Everyone knows bombs are allergic to water. Exactly. <laughs> and, then, and then we learn no one was killed, somehow. But, but that has its, but, you know, in Fast... Five, like there's a preface to this when they in the opening sequence of fast five when they're breaking dom out of the prison bus um they like cause a gigantic obscene crash where the bus you know goes over and over and over um and skids to a stop and you know then we have a cascade of talking heads uh news reporters all saying opining on this prison break and then they make space for one to say miraculously no one was injured and like that lack of personal injury is something that like somehow appears again and again in the franchise like even as we have these like huge levels of terroristic violence like somehow it's casualty-less except when it's visited upon a member of the family um and therefore the violence is like intensely personal well, and it speaks to the morality of the family that they are so righteous. I mean, I forget which movie it is. It's in that uh, I think Dom says, like, my 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 people aren't killers, you know, we're drivers. Um, and I think someone in the in the same movie is like, well, you guys have done a lot of other stuff than driving. You know what I mean? And like, but they're really the idea of somehow having it, their good enough good guys that they're able to pursue their missions without even harming any innocent bystanders. Even in this movie, the prison break scene, which felt like a new thing for the franchise to me, it's like a hand-to-hand fight made very possible by Jason Statham's hand-to-hand thing. It came out after, you know, John Wick has been established. So I feel like, but they established that, the prison guards are shooting with rubber bullets. And so even when he's using a guy as a shield, at first I'm like, holy fuck, this is really intense. And then they say rubber bullets as they bounce off the rock and the rock does a wrestling move by flexing. Um, So stupid. 
and, and, and then also like amazing <laughs> you mean i think Madeline. and also this film you know it has like some of the most spectacular car crash sequences of the entire franchise but they're done with driverless cars oh my Hyper has god hacked um the entirety of the computer chip enabled automobiles um in order to cause them to take off on their own which we saw in the 10th one. And then we also saw like in the New York scene where it's like, yeah, like these like automated cars. And I think the, it's interesting like how like that technology like is employed and also just kind of hearing everyone talk about like two things kind of came up, you know, kind of going back to the role of police. Like it's almost like cops like aren't considered like, like cop, like so many, I think cops have died or like their cars have been blown up or like they've, their cars have been used to like shield civilians. So it's like really interesting where it's like no one died, but then it's like, Oh yeah, we're, Cops weren't considered people. And yeah, yeah. With that, and then the they other thing is like Dom said in the tenth movie that he's not afraid of dying, and yet it almost kind of seems like this franchise like has really skirted over Paul Walker's death, or like just like the death of like other people. People are coming back, and so it's I think it's really interesting to see how it handles or lack thereof handles people like dying essentially that like are part of like the core family at the very least. I don't have any thoughts about that. I would love to hear if anyone else did, but it's like something that I'm kind of thinking of, like e- even in my own journey of grief is like, Oh yeah. Like no one really dies in this universe. Um, that's like a part of the family, but like, we're, but we're not scared of it, but no one. Well, we've, had, we've had at least two deaths retcon so far, right? Yeah. We've had mm-hmm. on and Gal Gadot, um, who shows up, at the in like the post credit sequence or the credit sequence of the tenth one, right? On a different submarine, I guess. I yeah, I well, thought it might be the submarine, but I was. I thought there. so too, but then I was like, yeah, it's confusing. She died saving yeah, on so in like the sixth one, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but then Han dies again at the end of the sixth one. Um, in the post credit scene, right? Um, <laughs> Or is that so more people re-die? Yeah. Well, well, Han well I mean, life, Han's death is just death. showed from a different yeah. perspective. We see Han's <laughs> death in like four different movies because of the like yeah. very complicated temporality um, where four, five, and six are prequels to three, but sequels to two. Mm-hmm. Okay. I need this explained to me. Sorry. We need like a chart. It's starting to get a little memeified where it's like. <laughs> well, it's not that. It's not that. I mean, the Halloween franchise is is more complicated than this one. Like it's it's really just three came third, but actually chronologically comes after seven. This is the weird thing about these movies is just like I've. I was watching one today and I think I've already forgotten it. They have yeah. this kind of like amnesia effect. Well, that reminds me of, <laughs> I was talking, I was talking to a friend recently about like, I, I, I was, I was starting to get into jazz through like free jazz. And I, I was asking someone who I knew liked free jazz, like how to, I was like, I think I like this music, but afterwards, I don't remember any, there's not like memorable melodies. I don't have like songs or riffs that I, that stick with me. Oh. And he was Is like, Is your genre y- reveal already? Is it Dog, jazz? Hold on. I'm about to, <laughs> I'm about to get through. Okay. He, and he was like, he was like the, he was like, it's, he was like, totally. It's not about that. It's about the experience of falling through it. And so I was like, oh, this other person who knows 
this music better than I do also doesn't like remember it. And I feel like these movies are the same way. Like I remember these movies by set pieces, which is the same as the mission impossible movies to me, which I'm also a fan of. And it's like, so set pieces and, um, the, and the way the characters interact, um, nine has when Tyrese mentions, I I thought for a second on my, rewatch that eight was the one where Tyrese mentions that they might be invincible, which is like an incredible moment in the series because they really avoid being meta except for uh, Brian in a lot of ways. And it's kind of the perfect little sprinkle that Tyrese's character is like, Hey, uh, look at my jacket. I have all these bullet holes. We never, are we superheroes? And like, so I remember it from moments like that rather than like, you know, oh, the God, you know, these great senses of, of you know, narrative pieces from movie to movie. Yeah, but it, okay, so it's pretty disturbing. I'm going to bust out my research. So Fast and Furious <laughs> 1 in 2001, the budget was $38 million, box office 208 okay? Great job, guys. Then we get Too Fast, Too Furious, budget is 76 box office comparable to the first 237 for this movie. And this is one of the things I love. Okay. Fast seven. One of the things I love is that, <laughs> that the budget is somewhere between 190 and $250 million. Just somewhere, somewhere between there. The margin of error is $60 million. <laughs> for that movie and people don't quite know okay or maybe somebody does i'm sure but this one was between 250 and 270 million dollars was put into this movie so the margin of error got smaller they're they're the margin of error books. got smaller but it's like it's just this amazing thing where you, you're watching these things that you know that in five minutes you're going to forget and that like every frame costs as much as like, you know, your college tuition <laughs> or something like that. Like could just like buy you a house or something like that. You know, um, it's it's incredible. So this movie made one point two billion dollars. Okay. And it broke the um, record for the highest debut box office earning uh, worldwide. Okay, worldwide is important. I didn't, I didn't do the breakdown of like what it was in the U.S. versus globally, but the ratio is like I was alluding to earlier, like much different from from many blockbusters we'd pro- probably talk about, um, but. In just that weekend, it was $532 million. Incredible. So let me ask you this, Madeline, and you know I mean this with love. Oh, no. What's the, what's the point? Like, as far, like, as far as it, are we, are we holding this, it's just, but are we holding this franchise uniquely accountable for that? No. No. Okay. These are not accountability. These are like, this is, 
this is symptomatic, right? Yeah. Are you the <laughs> like, cipher of this podcast this. trying to hold these movies accountable? Oh, but, maybe, maybe. But, but, to, like, but I just find that so interesting. It's just like how much fucking money is thrown yeah, at every no, single sure. frame of this and it just burns through your memory. Like you just cannot retain it. Like even fans, real huge fans of these have a really hard time remembering which of the films, whatever happened in it. And there's just this really amazing amnesiac kind of effect that. <laughs> that but Joe, what were you going to say? Yeah, I was just, I mean, to say, like to defend Madeline, like it's not that, you know, oh, these good. films are uniquely responsible for this, but it's that the franchise as a whole is like the most visibly symptomatic um, franchise of the changing conditions of Hollywood film production. Because you move from this like mid-budget, you know, like carefully produced, like very few name brand stars, like, you know, Vin Diesel's biggest roles to that point are like the Iron Giant and Pitch Black, both like cult movies, but like not any ones that have a big draw. Um, it, it goes from like this, this very small scale thing by the standards of the Hollywood blockbuster to this like international epic, right? Um, and if you're going to compare it to Mission Impossible, you know, the first Mission Impossible film comes out five years earlier and has twice the budget of the first um, of the first Fast and the Furious film. And so like the scale, like the scale of that has been much more linear, um, you know, even as the budgets have grown, it's already like from the beginning, like a gigantic epic saga, whereas the Fast and the Furious has really shifted its tenor in that vein. Um and, you know, it's it's survived the collapse of the mid-budget Hollywood feature. That is a really interesting – the its longevity and the small scale of the beginning of it, 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 like, really proving those points is, yeah, super interesting. Yeah, and, I mean, F9 was – I mean, I, I still haven't seen it, but it um, – so that was the first post-COVID release, and it really was seen as, like, a guinea pig how how – how well can we revive like theater going? And it was a dip, but it's pretty impressive. It was 726 million um, in the box office, which at this point is quite a, is quite a feat. Right. So I do think you could kind of, I appreciate your defense, Joe. <laughs> but I'm I do not think ri- you can kind of like fall. Oh, whatever. Devil's advocate. Yeah. I think you can follow like all these transfers, transformations over the last two decades, which are like, pretty fascinating in terms of film. Um, And um, I do think a a lot of it is about this ensemble effect, adding more and more characters that appeal to different demographics and different like national markets that you can like map across. And also they globe trot in all of these movies, right? Like they're, they're more and more tapping into the international aesthetics appeal etc of of this franchise and it's less and less about this kind of like kind of classic american cops and robbers story i think that we encounter in the first one and i'd be interested to think about one of the things i wanted to ask you all is like does it become more or less a cab like what is the arc in terms of um police sympathy or antagonism and like what do we what might we speculate is like the correlation with that and in this other something that like we can actually like look at in terms of numbers 
which is that this is becoming more and more internationalized and more and more um, kind of strategically framed in those ways, you know? Well, I think Joe Joe's framework helps me a lot because I see it less as a line from movie to movie, even if it were to be like, a, oh, six is the most ACAB, but then eight dips or something like that. I think it's more that there is a toggle going through each of these movies at every point where it's like, you know, the fucking, those devices that are like the audience approval devices of how much they're enjoying something or not enjoying something. It's like that, but for like how much pro or anti-cop each movie is being across movies, but also within movies. Yes. And it's also like, you know, who the, the villains are is important to that toggle, right? Like, mm-hmm. The films are anti-drug dealers and anti-terrorists, like most consistently, right? Like those are the people who they hold to be like the villains worth worth becoming cops for. Um, if you're, you know, doing heists, if you're stealing things, you know, at whatever scale, you're probably okay. Um, and, you know, I, I'm just thinking about like, the the line is always really messy. Like the toggle like flickers, right? Like one of the things that's super important in five, for instance, is that the villain um, is storing all of his drug wealth in the police station. Um, and that his entire sort of like criminal edifice is like built upon the collaboration of the police as a w- collaboration with the police, as opposed to like escaping from them. But are these movies anti-terrorist in the sense that the cool, like, I would say the other character that gets closest to sex appeal other than Han is Cypher. Yes. yes. Despite having the worst haircuts of any, of any (laughs) character in maybe the last 30 years of film, as, as bad as the dreads are in this one, Cypher's haircut in the next one is almost even worse. Wait, what does it look like in the next one? It's like a bowl cut with a... But they does look she like... become less blonde? No, because he's... I think yeah. that might be the thing to think about. What you're, what you're talking about, yeah. like the less the the no yeah, it gets dyed. Hypothesis. It gets dyed like an. And then an she becomes more color. and more of an ally. The darker her <laughs> hair gets, right? Well, what color? I think her hair might be blonde. She becomes again part of the family. Yeah, it's like it's like a dirty when she has blonde. black hair. But yeah. Okay. She yeah she it does it's not it's not linear like that but <laughs> she is but Charlize Theron is. Like, Cypher is sexy in this movie. And not, like, as sexy as we've seen her in other movies. But in in the... And, and maybe we can talk about acting performances a little bit, too. Because I think this movie has some of the best. And, like, I'm here for, like, plenty of dumping on Vin Diesel. He's, like, definitely has, like... Maybe his clownish elements outweigh his, like, positive elements. But... He his commitment, it, like th- this this franchise is a testament, it, almost the case study for like this man like willed this franchise to have staying power. He manifested, and in eight, what's that? He manifested. Yeah, absolutely. He manifested. Well, also, but we talked about how Helen Marin also came to be a part of the franchise as well. Oh, tell us the backstory on that, M, because you were kind of alluding to some. Like goss 
earlier. Well, yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> I want I want to know the sources of these things, but I am here for the goss. I want the goss. I don't care. I was going to say sources. like that's what I'm like. I don't have the research, but I have the goss, right. um, which is adjacent yes. to Noss in a lot of ways. Um, but anyways, <laughs> apparently, how Helen Marin came to be a part of the franchise is that. Vin Diesel played D&D with her um, because like also a lot of like how the films are set up is through the Dungeons and Dragons like kind of universe. And this is the part we need to fact check like extensively. But apparently he also um, he also, you know, romanced her a little bit and that they might have had an affair as well. Which oh, is the I love this. This sounds so this. made up to me, but no, I, it's true. Like, <laughs> like the thing I heard is that she like requested she she was a fan of the movies. Mm-hmm. She made it publicly known that she wanted to be in them, and, then they and so then D&D. she, yeah, well, and that she and Gary Gray talked about uh, what what her role would be in this, and that's how she became Deckard Shaw's mom. But but. The the acting it also looks like Bill is like... looking this up as well. So we have, we have like on like I just saw their face get super serious, and I was like, we have someone on the case. Yeah, yeah. yes, yes. But well, okay, I, I want to talk Marin. about the no. Hold on a second. I want to say let me, something. No, 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 no. No, let me let them speak. Out of a club in two thousand or nineteen ninety nine. No, maybe it was two thousand one with Helen Mirren. They got kicked out of a club together because they were smoking pot. And she apparently had these two incredibly attractive, like 20 something ripped body black (laughs) men who she was like making out with and hanging out with and like all over. And they all got kicked out of the club with my partner. And that's my degree of separation from Helen Mirren. But it kind of checks with some of these things. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Of her is that she has this kind of facade but then she also has this like other side to her where she's like i go clubbing i watch fast and furious <laughs> i get high i like make out with like hot cubs you know <laughs> Joe, it looks like you and i love that about her you um, I, I, I want I, I have found things about her playing D with vin diesel on set i have not yet confirmed whether this mm. happened prior to her joining the franchise Okay. okay. So we know that they now, a little bit and playing D and D on set, and maybe something happened. Maybe something didn't. But she, okay, she, I'm di- I am dying here. Her. I am dying here. Can I please talk no. about the acting performances in this movie? Oh my god! <laughs> okay. yes. Fine, just talk about the acting. We want to talk about Helen Mirren making out with boys and stuff like that. I edit this podcast. I edit this podcast and I will absolutely cut this shit if I need to. I need to say, please. Okay. I'm dying. I am dying here. Let me talk. I want you to rank the acting performances. (laughs) Thank you, Joe. Oh, that's good. Okay. Okay, I can't do how, how many how many am I ranking? At how, least like 10. <laughs> the top ten <laughs> of this of this of of one Fate movie? of the Furious. The cast okay. well exceeds ten characters. Yeah, I know, I know. Okay, so we're gonna go. <laughs> we're of. gonna go. Charlize number one. Whoa. We're gonna go. Vin number two. Whoa. What? We're gonna go. Oof. We're gonna go. Yo, 
I cannot handle the amount you are just undermining. You have you, there's no way you've even seen all the Mission Impossible movies. And for me to say I because like I don't like for me Tom to, Cruise. For me to say I like something and you to go, no. At, with the same with the same vigor that I reserved for free Palestine is utterly this is like I'm like gonna pull my intestines out, okay? And we're gonna turn this into a video podcast. So Oh, please wow. okay i think that the charlize then I, w- I am muting i am muting your audio right now madeline i want you to know that uh, charlize vin tyrese uh kurt russell fourth um then then i mean i got oh 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 oh, oh. um sorry S- actually statham third Thank you. Then, I was then Tyrese, then Tyrese, yes. then Kurt Russell fifth. Um, uh, who, who, who? I mean, what we've got Helen Mirren. I, I mean, honestly, those are the ones that matter to me. I think Statham really contributes to this movie. And the thing that F. Gary Gray said in the commentary, which I thought was like fascinating, is that, um, is that he thinks there's great chemistry between Vin Diesel and Charlize Theron in this movie. And it, and I can see, there are certain moments where I see what he's saying, but it does it's certainly not romantic chemistry. So maybe that's what's throwing me off. But there are scenes especially between like when she's behind the glass that Elena's in and he's on the other side where they're stares at each other and this is like what this movie like this movie has figured out some of the ridiculous elements of it are like this movie has figured like this franchise has figured out what do what does not need to be included like this this movie is one of the first where i started noticing that that there are times when they don't have any communication devices between the cars they're just talking and hearing each other which is like great I don't need to know that they have an earpiece, you know? So this movie does like great shortcuts like that. And with, uh, and the way it does that is it uses these huge archetypes and then it relies on actors who bring a ton of gravitas. Like Charlize Theron has a whole thing and you can just train a camera on these people and they look interesting doing almost nothing. And so like, Vin Diesel is the most restrained, I think, in the whole franchise in this movie. And F. Gary Gray said that when he had that one moment where he's like, Charlene, Charlize Theron is explaining, like, quote, choice theory to him, which I'm, like, not even sure is a – it sounds so made up to me. But, like and, – and Vin Diesel is like, I never had a choice because I'm alone. And he said that, like, everyone, like, jumped when he did that because they didn't know he was going to deliver the line that way. And, like – there are moments when you see Charlize Theron like not blinking and just these little things like that, that they're like the, 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 what's so odd is in a movie that is fucking enormous where they like are trying to outrun a submarine that the acting performances are surprisingly restrained. And I think it's even more ironic that I spent so much time getting animated and truly regressing personality wise by years getting getting aggravated trying to describe restrained acting performances (laughs) so i'm gonna shut up now 
But I'm curious what your all thoughts well, are on that. I'm so glad you brought up Jason Satham because I, I actually really liked, well, because the scene where he puts on the Alvin and the Chipmunks with Lil Bean is carrying him out of the plane. Like, he's just so charming with that baby. And like, I'm just like, I'm like, I need like, like put him in front of this kid again. Like, I'm almost kind of mad that in the 10th, like that him and Lil B didn't have a reunion because I thought he did like, such a remarkable job. Um, just, and just very enjoyable, almost like to the Jason Momoa levels. Um, I definitely want to ruminate and think a little bit more about like the Vin Diesel acting performance, because I think unfortunately my unfuckability doesn't see his acting sometimes or I'm not <laughs> thinking about it. Um, so I'm subjecting him to the male gaze, um, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, I would love to hear, I'd love to hear you all's thoughts, Joe and Madeline. You know, I'm thinking a lot about, yeah, what you're describing about the sort of like the non-romantic um, sort of like simmering acting and tension that develops between Charlize Theron and Vin Diesel. And, you know, and I'm thinking about that in relationship to like a different film, which has like a very different um, setup between the male and female leads. But it's also a non-romantic one. And also, I think, one with like kind of bizarrely understated performances, which is Mad Max Fury Road. Which- yes! <laughs> Yes, where, where we, that's in my Alex notes. Barone and uh, Tom Hardy, you know, have this kind of like bizarre tension, chemistry, antagonism that like m- morphs into like comradeship, but is like never romantically inflected over the course of the film. And like, you know, obviously that's the film where we see Charlie's really throw down behind the wheel, and we don't get that in in fate of the furious but we do have um i think i think you're correct like a kindred sort of like simmering charlie's performance um which was one that like took me several watches to tune in to like the ways in which it's interesting because she does have like the most god-awful hair in cinema (laughs) (laughs) but is i think a really really good one um Jason Jason Statham steals this movie for me, um, which is weird because, like, you know, he's done the impossible of, like, becoming part of the family even as he hasn't redeemed himself even in the slightest for killing Han, um, which is, like, a thing that gets brought up. You know, it's it's get weaponized against Dom. They, like, show him Jason Statham hanging out with the crew and are like, they've already replaced you with a murderer. Um... (laughs) But but he's so charming in this movie, even as he's, like, cold-blooded and awful. Um, what I'm most curious about and just, like, am, am kind of in awe that you even said is, like, ranking Tyrese originally at three. Um, and, and I guess he's bumped down to four because you've put Jason Statham in at three. But I just, like... Roman is is the character I struggle with the most in the I can tell okay let me give you he exists in my mind in order to say sexist things that other characters primarily and um can call him out for and so he's like this this id um who's like able to be the sort of like sexist jackass who the film franchise wants to appeal to but you know Hege and um 
Ramsey are able to like beat him down so this film can so the franchise can still say it's not sexist while still voicing sexist things. He's but Tej I j- objectifies Ramsey as much as Roman does in oh, this. Oh movie. yeah, but he does so with a different sense of humor. And I, sure. I don't think it I don't think it's better. I don't think it's less sexist. No, 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 no. The, the, I the get film you. portrays Tej's version of objectification as somehow like women affirming, whereas Romans is like women denigrating. I don't. I don't think that that holds up. But it's what the like franchise seems to want to believe. Wait, is this <laughs> well is this the movie where they do the like where Ramsey's like, well, do you either of you know my last name? That yeah, that is it's at the end of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, which is a nice undercutting, you know, like the rare moment when they're al- allowing her to do that. But the one thing I'll say. I'm certainly not here to be an apologist for same with Vin Diesel to say his acting is good in these moments is not to say like I'm a Vin Diesel stand, but the thing about Roman and what I'll connect it to the whole franchise with that we haven't talked about is the, you know, the rumor that, that has been that's so strong that I do believe it is that behind the scenes, there are certain actors who like no longer can be in scenes together. The reason you know, apparently the rock hates Vin Diesel. Uh, apparently the rock and Jason Statham had a lot of trouble together. So like, so there are these whole, apparently there was supposed to be a post credit sequence with the rock and Jason Statham that Vin Diesel, it got added after he saw the cut of the movie. And he was like, it had already been in theaters and he was like, get this out of here. Like I'm the man I'm should be the last thing they see in this. So, but the thing that I like about Roman and the, and I certainly absolutely by virtue of my position, have some blind spots when it comes to like sexist humor. However, there is a lot of Roman stuff that is not sexism and is traditional low status character stuff as evidenced in this movie by him being number 11 on the top 10 list somehow ramsey is in is even in the top 10 and why roman can be so funny is is a thing that tyrese is actually allowed to do because because oh the other thing in with these egos is it apparently like the rock can't lose fights vin diesel can't lose fights Tyrese like drives his car so terribly it ends up under a fucking frozen lake in this movie and that allows him to be funny because it's just not funny to constantly win and so he allows himself to lose and that is the credit I will give to Roman as a character that I think like really adds to the franchise okay I think there is some merit there and I think especially we see how that kind of pays off in the 10th one because he leads them on this faulty mission and, and he's really questioning like, you know, or just kind of has that awareness, like, well, I haven't really been a leader and like all this other stuff. But then like in a lot of ways, like I think the whole bit of like, well, he keeps his cash strapped on him because he is <laughs> this like side character and is able to essentially rally the team and like show more of like a leaderful movement way of like, they all kind of are bringing something. But um, yeah, I, I definitely appreciate your um, your take kind of walking through that like he does allow himself to lose. And then I'm also just kind of thinking about like Madeline's research and like how much money is spent and like how all these contracts are negotiated like with these things in there. And like um, because Vin Diesel is a producer, I know apparently him and The Rock don't talk because Vin Diesel is like, well, I, as a producer, I can make comments on your acting performance. Um, 
And The Rock is like, fuck this shit. I don't want to. But now I'm interested because the post credit scene in the timeline is of The Rock coming back. And so I'm really interested to see, like, has that resolved behind the scenes? Like, how's that going to be? Because I think the way that they were filming it is like they couldn't even be in the same room together at, at a certain point. Joe, I really think you have to Yeah, go for it. <laughs> really notoriously with fate, right? Like, they don't appear on screen together. Yeah. They're both in the film, but they're like in totally separate sequences throughout the entire movie. <laughs> and The Rock is also like, I don't, th- it, not in the closing family dinner, I don't think. Yeah, you're right. I got to say, it is nice to hear like drama around a TV or a film production uh, where the bad behavior is not of an explicitly abusive or especially sexually abusive nature that like that basically this amounts to them all being kind of shitty coworkers. Like someone giving you notes about your performance, like absolutely sucks. But it's like, if you like Vin Diesel, you can still like Vin Diesel, despite him giving people acting notes, you know? Well, it is interesting because it's like it's is it okay if I talk now, Dave? <laughs> Listen, I'm so I'm so sorry. Okay, but I'm I just get in, like, so this, like I know you were worked up. I'm interested in this like meta level that all of this is happening on because I, I I had you know okay I had not seen any of these movies, but for years before not having seen these movies, I knew about Vin Diesel and The Rock having these conflicts. That there were, you know, important lines in their contracts for the next, you know, all these things that were negotiated. And and I was kind of fascinated by that and, and didn't really even need to see the movies to just kind of enjoy those anecdotes. I love the analogy to wrestling, though, right? Um, the like, the fake, not fake inauthenticity of of these actors and their performances, like we actually want them to have these rivalries. We want mm-hmm. them. And that's, that's part of like the intertextual stuff. I think with like the rock and John. Cena, Sarah, Cena. Thanks. Oh yeah. Michael, Michael, Sarah. Sarah. And John <laughs> okay. So yeah, th- this is how much of a, a novice I am with. This I event. love it. Like I understand that that is part of their appeal, right? Is that like we want to believe, in fact, that these conflict that they aren't acting, and that's part of this restraint issue too, right? Like on the one hand, he's super committed, right? Like commitment, and we can like see the commitment by like how big his arms are, right? Like that's it's like measurable, right? Yeah. In muscle mass, like their level of commitment. But we also want to kind of believe that they're not quite acting, right? <laughs> like there's this whole play with o- the audience appeal. I think that's really important. And I was like looking, I was like, oh, I want to find out what what is the beef between. Vin Diesel and The Rock. And I spent an embarrassing amount of time during my office hours. My students didn't show up, but like all of my office hours were devoted to figuring this out. And I couldn't, there was no there there as far as I could find. It was a lot of stuff about he said, he said, um, kind of very clear like PR moments you know, it's office. I was kind of wondering if it was made up. A lot <laughs> like of it would, it would be great Instagram. promotion. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, Tyrese is messy <laughs> Wait, behind the scenes. Deleted, deleted Instagram posts, you know, were a big part of the story. But I, I think that's a really important kind of thing. And I think that that connects also to Paul Walker's death, right? Like, why the hell would Dom name his son Brian unless Brian had died? <laughs> I mean, like, like, there's no reason you would do that and why that would be such an immense gesture unless Ryan uh, Ryan was... And this becomes a real problem in 10 um, to, like, jump a little bit because one of the things that 10 does is it brings, you know, it brings um, Mia back, Brian's wife, Mm -hmm. Um, But, like, the whole point of Brian leaving... um, you know, the crew in seven, like in, in in universe sort of like narrative logic is that he's committing himself to protecting Mia and his child, children, because he's having pregnant with a second child at, in, at the end of seven um, and like is planning to never leave them. And so like can't go on these missions anymore. And then suddenly we get this whole sequence where like Mia is now, you know, back for whatever reasons like separated from him not like actually <laughs> broken up yeah. but she's like elsewhere with no explanation um and you know but brian is off screen and i just i don't really know how they're going to be able to handle that logic in a way going forward that like doesn't really deal with you know the fact that they're like constantly mourning paul walker via invocations of brian as though he were dead well, and I think it's interesting. So, so uh, yeah, I also don't know how they handle it going forward, but I think an interesting thing you bring up that speaks to the family thing, uh, an aspect of family that we haven't touched on in eight is that Dom turns on, you, you know, the, like a, a thing I'm almost like not even interested in exploring is like, it's been talked to death how these movies like show the queer concept of chosen family. You know what I mean? And there's, it's like, yep, they do, you know? Okay. But in this movie, he turns on his family and he turns on his family for blood family. And so is Brian's absence, you know, in, in the logic of the universe is technically also him in a different way turning on joining the family in order to take care of blood. So like does is there real chosen family here if that's the case? I don't know. Yeah. I think that's right. Um it's really tough. I mean in this movie it's also complicated by um Cypher's argument against family. Yes. We have yes. to grapple with if we're like going to be thinking about this, right? Like one of like she's she sets up this very explicit dichotomy early in the movie between family and freedom. Um where she claims that Dom cannot make free choice, free choices because of his allegiance to family. And choice in her mind and this is, you know, the film's simplistic vision of anarchism is like explicitly individualistic. It's ego-driven. It's not mm-hmm driven by like consideration for other people um and so you know family is for her like a weapon to demonstrate like dom's actual inability to be free um but you know this you're right this depends upon her ability to say like 
your child trumps your chosen family. Um, later in the film, you know, she'll say that like even that biological sort of like impulse is is fleeting. Um, and she brings up this sort of like she, she claims that after she kills Elena, that Dom's sense of loss isn't real, that it's just but but she does it in the weirdest way, which is she yeah. says that it's not real because it's just an effect of your brain, of your neurochemistry. <laughs> and I'm like, if anything, like what you seem to be giving us is like a very intense reason why it's like real and material. That it's like <laughs> it's encoded deeply in our like human sort of like stru- like neurological structure that we mourn people. Like I don't I don't know how that translates to fake, but for her it does. Um, and then she says, you know, this idea of family that's so core to you, that rules your world, that's a biological lie. You don't have to accept it. And so, like, she does this really bizarre thing where she ends up sort of like arguing against the idea of the biological family in favor of like freely chosen filiation. Um, like yeah. almost like does this, this like kindred inversion of the sort of like queer chosen family logic in order to say that the bio- that the biological sort of like urge to mourn and to attach is a prison instead what we have in st- what we need to do instead is like to forge our own future um but and so like the the, the structure of biology here versus like what is chosen is like is really strange right it's on the one hand, it's the logic that sustains the franchise in terms of like the queer chosen family trope that people are obsessed with in it. On the other hand, it's like exactly what Cypher weaponizes in order to like get Dom to like destroy his own family. Well, is this the moment to talk about her sort of anarchism as it, as it, you, you know, the, I think the, of your original three, I think the, her holding the superpowers <laughs> accountable is, mm-hmm. is the bullet point that we haven't explored as deeply. Um, it's so interesting too. Yeah. Is there a relationship between this? I, I mean, it sounds like instead of chosen family, she's arguing for just being a free floating individual, as long as you have a ghost plane and can make, redheads do whatever you want exactly she does seem to be to kind of be a bit sad when the redhead dies true (laughs) she does but isn't that what she says to dom initially is like his real i wish i had written this down but it's not actually family that he loves the most it's that that experience of of whatever freedom the 10 seconds on the, the quarter mile seconds. of the race when he's like not thinking anything yeah it's a very interesting I mean that's like yeah that's her individualist anarchism <laughs> right? but it's almost like... spiritual where it's like a flow state is freedom or something which is where it ties I know Madeline you did some like I I read some of the articles that you did for that you like put in our doc for research about work about like you know work being so defining in these and i think she really thinks that like i bet she would call her hacking a calling you know what i mean like that that is the truth that trumps biochemistry even is just these this flow state this productivity this sense of purpose um yeah and well it's also just it's interesting like, at the beginning because um 
they also think Cypher is an organization and like not like an individual as well. Like that was also something that they had to discuss is like, oh no, like this is just like one person that like every couple of seconds her identity is like wiped off of like all interfaces. Yeah. <laughs> well, one detail that I remembered, but um, you know, I think it's interesting to think about like, how anarchism is defined because i saw at, not to reference twitter but i saw a really good tweet of like something that people misconstrue about anarchism is like tyranny chaos um like without a state versus like oh it's like socialism without a state and like what does that actually entail in terms of like care networks and like all this other stuff and so it's so it's so interesting to see how like anarchism is talked like both of them leftist spaces how it's kind of maybe portrayed in like this mainstream movie and then like how it boils down to like individuality when it's like, well, it's a little bit more complex than just like, it's like, how are we actually building incentive to consent to be here to these conditions, to this collectivity, or at least what Cypher is building is like actually holding these powers accountable or like a relationship with um, Rhodes. But it's not real accountability, it's right? Real it's like accountability people. to her. Like yeah. my very like slight understanding and fandom of anarchism is, is like that a lack of hierarchical um, structures is, is important to many strains of it. And like Cypher wants hierarchy. She wants the hierarchy to be her at the top and every world superpower below her. Yeah. I mean, it's more like an, in, well, what we'd call like a libertarianism or something like that. Like it's, it's, it's completely um, founded in the individual and the individual's um, free will and these kinds of things, right? Like it's not an anarchism of like with a collective horizon, like whatsoever. Right. So, um, but that's interesting thinking about it in terms of like what these different bodies are, right. We have like the family, we have, the cops and military and we have like the nation <laughs> like that's basically it and so it kind of makes sense that that um if we are to have these kinds of like liberatory um energies coming out of this villain character that it would have to be kind of channeled through individualism right and i i get the sense that that's the case with the jason momoa character too although i haven't seen it well, um his is like an individualism yeah. that's routed through family again because like right because it's like revenge exactly. for his family right and he's like somehow brazilian <laughs> Is it, sorry. It's also <laughs> a really grotesque scene where he's like painting the nails and like talking about all like processing kind of his grief. And then you realize that he's painting the nails of like two hen former cypher henchmen that he just like totally killed and annihilated. Um, which I think what Dave was kind of saying is like a kind of cross film. <laughs> it might not age very well as like a scene, but yeah. Well, I think it's interesting because I've thought about it since mm -hmm. and it and it and it relates to a thing that I think F. Gary Gray does well in this, although he does it through um, through absence. There are two really brutal kills in this uh, in this movie. One is Elena, obviously, but we don't see Elena get shot in the head. So not only do we get the brutality of not seeing it, uh, and almost the tastefulness of not seeing it, it also sets up some shit to happen later where somehow Elena survived, uh, which feeds the series. The other one is just a really quick one, but in my mind, it, it's when uh, Letty kicks 
the Russian over the railing and he falls into the fucking spinning rudder of the submarine, but you don't see it. You just see the blood splatter on the wall. And that's also really, I think it's elegant. And I think F Gary Gray has a sense of what, like, like we need Elena to die to see that Cypher is like a fucking sociopath. Right. And same with Jason Momoa. Like my understanding is that Jason, that Jason Momoa scene was to show, oh, he's not just this silly, goofy guy. He's fucking great. He's fucking like murderously psychopathic. And I think the flip side of that, a a, just a really great moment. I keep listening. I I keep referencing this commentary because I feel so proud of myself for having listened to it. But F. Gary Gray talks about in the Cuba scene in the at the end of the um the race there when he gives I think Raldo maybe is the name of that character when Raldo like offers him his keys and is like you won the car and Vin Diesel says keep the car your respect is enough for me and then he gives the keys to his car to his cousin apparently the script originally Vin, like Dom was going to take the car keys from Raldo and give them to his cousin. And F. Gary Gray on the day made a script change that allowed Dom, because there's a moment where he looks to Letty and checks with her and then chooses respect and a code over just a transactional moment. And his reason for doing that is so that it's almost like insurance against us hating Dom too much before we know why he's flip sides to Cypher. And so so it's these really smart story moments where it's like, we need an Elena death to show that Cypher is a sociopath. We need Jason Momoa talking to the corpses to show that he's a sociopath. We need uh, Vin Diesel returning the keys to Raldo to show that he's not a sociopath. I'm, I'm part of me is like the only thing I was thinking is like, is it sociopathic behavior to watch the commentary? Um, <laughs> listen, I thought we'd move past they any difficult moments. I thought we were cool again. <laughs> I, I just want to say, you know, one of the things you've noted, right, is like the ways in which this film and is very canny with when it shows you violence and when it doesn't. Um, and it's withholding um it's withholding of these sort of like gore moments um and um it, like it, it it just it it mirrors right it mirrors Jason Statham putting the little uh headphones on Lil B like right the film is also concerned about our sort of like relationship to these scenes and how they're going to impact our perception of the characters and so it's concerned about like what it lets us sort of like acknowledge as happening and what it allows us to sort of like believe you know is plausibly deniable um i'm gonna bring this back to the marketability of this movie too then right like that this is a pg-13 movie that you could bring your five-year-old to if you were kind of a crappy dad. (laughs) Or that's what I'm imagining is like, and also the latest movie just from the trailer, seeing 
um, young Brian in these action sequences, I see is like very clearly targeting really young kids to enjoy these movies, right? Um, And so then we get to kind of feel clean about that because on the one hand, we have really vast like infrastructural terrorism that is magically clean and without fatalities. Right. And well, and what is an- interesting. Oh yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say another thing along those lines in the commentary, F Gary Gray is like, so uh, we really, I really got to d- do a lot of damage to a lot of these cars. And part of it's like, I used to play with hot wheels as a kid and it's fun to now play with big cars. But also if you ever see a rich guy who has a Bentley like this, know that I destroyed about five versions of his car. So he like actually talks about like in this, it's a weird offhanded moment, but you're like, oh, is there supposed to be a like wealth inequality aspect to like enjoying the action in these movies? Like it feels like a stretch to me, but it's it's interesting to think about. It is really interesting to think about. Um, and I also think it's like, as Malin was talking about like marketability and like how now like there's like a whole thing being opened up with like, will be like jumping a few ages it's like I, I feel like this one is probably like the apex of like the most family forward film of is the 10th one and I know we're talking about like fate but I feel like it's kind of like I think starting with fate's kind of setting up because you know it's like Dom and Letty get married um you know there's this scene in Cuba where you know she's like do you have you thought about it like we need to ask like what's the fate of the world and all this other stuff and so it's like I guess it's you know are they and at the end of the 10th movie Lil B is like I have faith you know like faith is like now like this other emergent theme is like what are we trying to say about like how we think about just broader society and like how are we hopeful for things is like just something that um I think at least the series I don't want to say it's like trying to unpack or tackle because I I don't know I'm not the, the writers of it I haven't done nearly as enough research or commentary on it but just kind of thinking about like yeah I would probably say like the 10th one is like probably the pinnacle of like the family friendliness of the franchise kind of coming to fruition. Um, but yeah. Faith is such an interesting theme too, that it doesn't get articulated, but it's so there, like the leap of faith specifically, right? Like being such an important trope. Um, well, and there's a very a like undercutting uh, or underlying like Christian you know, Judeo-Christian thing. But yeah, there's a cross. I mean, the cross is what Dom wires up to to let Shaw know how to get onto the airplane to to save Bri- baby Brian. Yeah. So, and there's so many Christ-like figures. I mean, especially Vin Diesel, but you know, Brian. Yeah, every, everyone. <laughs> everyone's a little Christ in this movie. <laughs> hmm yeah, and like I I wonder how that does for like marketability internationally, but then also it's like, you know, I'm kind of thinking about just the description of like how are we toggling between like when are we gonna be like just anti-police and then we're gonna dial it back? And like I wonder how much it also ties into like thinking about how other countries do have this disdain for like America. So it's like how are we how are they playing into that so it can be like marketable to other places, but then also like going into the American outlaw, like when do we decide to be cops when who's redeemable, who's not redeemable. Um, Yeah. What it kind of just says about like our culture and like who we have faith in, so to speak, because we had faith in Shaw and 
he delivered and you had that full that full circle moment when he puts the little headphones on little b and plays the chipmunks which i know we've talked about several times but i just i can't get over it but yeah oh it's so good it's like a set piece in and of itself that's like almost as good as the zombie cars in new york in my mind Mm -hmm. You really liked the zombie car scene. We've talked about it. I love the zombie. The zombie cars is great. That's such a like fascinating. I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting is like in seven, you have the car, the cars jumping from building to building in Dubai, which is like, in my mind, one of the most, to be honest, the space scene in F9 is kind of dinky. It's not that crazy. Like, but in, but in seven, those cars jumping from building to building in Dubai is almost the most, it's like, how does it get bigger than this? And they try to one-up it with the submarine in some ways. But but I think really hmm. that's why story becomes more important here. Uh, why the baby becomes so important. And why in New York, there's kind of – it's all part of the same thing. But the zombie cars is like a fear everyone has about self-driving cars – taking over and you get to actually see it and hearing about the making of it you realize how fucking insane it is that they shot at least a lot of that in new york like they were able to shut down enough of new york to fucking throw cars off parking garages which is fucking wild and then the other uh set piece that really exemplifies like going smaller to to one-up things is um, the F. Gary Gray calls it the Moby Dick moment, where all the like uh, grappling hooks I love that. are in Vin Diesel's car, and they're all pulling him very nicely mirrored uh, in the submarine when they all gather around him at the end, because pre- cars protect a-, a person from fire, I guess. But uh, <laughs> but like the way they're all pulling his car with those grappling hooks is like. Whoa, this is just like them, like grunt, and it's very carry. Like, I mean, it's the stupidest thing I've <laughs> said about these movies, but like, they're like grinding their brakes, and and it's fucking cool. Yeah, I, I, I don't know, Joe. I'm curious your thoughts about the zombie car sequence. I love the zombie car sequence, I love the grappling hook sequence. I mean, you know, um, they're interest like those sequences together and their proximity in the movie are really interesting because they show something about like how the films theorize the like necessity of the kind of like cyborg relationship between driver and car, right? Um, because we have the Moby Dick sequence and we have all them with their grappling hooks, like trying to pull Vin Diesel and hold him in place. And like, as that's failing and as they're struggling with it, you like get the sort of like in car and out of car sort of like hoggle between shots. And it feels very physical, right? Like you, it's like you're watching, it's like you're watching them exert themselves, like the actor's bodies in order to keep the car moving. Like you're watching them struggle to just like hold their foot on the gas um, as they're reversing really hard. Um, but it makes it feel as though like that's real physical tension when really they're just like depressing a pedal. Um, and, you know, that's partially mirrored by Roman sort of like screaming, oh no, my Bentley, as, you know, he is the first one to fuck <laughs> up because he's always the first one to fuck up. Um, 
but we have this like very intimate relationship between these people and their cars where like it's made clear these are like co-extensions of them to the degree that the car is straining they are also straining um that's in sharp contrast to um the mass of sort of like vehicular like pure vehicular but without bodies slaughter of the robot cars um yes. which like have no driver have no autonomy and like the only way that they can be effective is if you throw literally hundreds of them off a roof. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I know, but, like, right? Like they're like hundreds. even as, you know, they are, you know, seemingly this like wildly heightened technological marvel to like be able to control all these cars from the airplane hundreds of miles thousands of miles probably away. Um, what you see is actually those cars are wildly less effective. You have to fill an entire city block with them in order to get that like armored limousine to not be able to drive anymore. And even then, you you then need to have Dominic Toretto show up with like a bandsaw on his arm to like finally open pry the car open. The robots can't do that for him. Um, and so like it's a moment, right, where like on the one hand, it's the spectacular sort of like um technological sort of like leap into science fiction for the film um where this like auto driving is like so capable of, cr- of producing this mayhem um intentionally whereas we know that auto driving is only capable of producing mayhem unintentionally in real life um but good genre genre question too genre though, question. but like but ultimately yeah. the film believes that you know for a car to really be effective it has to have a driver in it because you know the driver is part of the technology of the car as opposed to something separable mm-hmm. and that's what makes ramsey really interesting as someone in the crew who doesn't drive right and then the the first scene in which we encounter her in 7 She's like thrown, he like, uh, Paul Walker like throws her onto the car, right? And, you know, she's clinging to Vin Diesel's hand, you know, through the, the sunroof and all this stuff. But then the non consensuality, right, of like the passenger role is a really interesting trope, I think, that I, all, I think all of the films I saw in the franchise at some point visit um vin diesel has decided they are going to drive off this cliff she does not want to <laughs> he tells her to put on a helmet <laughs> you know i mean like and it is because it is it is this extension of his body that that she is some kind of like kind of parasite or something like that too or somehow cohabiting but like he has control she does not have control and there's always these kind of like interesting friction moments that are consent moments <laughs> right um that then you know get diluted by you know further plot points but i th- i find that to be a really interesting um motif you know that comes up a few times and yeah just the fact that she doesn't drive and she's in this crew is also really like, what did you all think about that? I actually think she's the most f- fun and charismatic character yeah, <laughs> or like magnetic person. <laughs> yeah. Like in the 10th one, like you kind of, cause like in London and she's like, I know where to go for like black market deals and stuff. She, I think it's also, it's either the 10th or the ninth one where she like 
makes a comment on a car and then she's like you see i know things which is really funny. it's the 10th one because, it's the 10th one which like she literally goes see i know stuff now yeah and it's like as if she didn't before because she created like and obviously like she's razzing them a little bit but like right. she created like this technology and all this other stuff yeah i really enjoy ramsey as a character especially because it's like you know part of me is like clearly it's she's kind of a step in for mia who's like jordana brewster's like no longer a part of it like i feel like that's kind of how like they they do a lot of their female characters it's like we, we need to add someone to like kind of like to the ratio a little bit um and then it's really interesting because I think Vin Diesel at one point was like, we might have like an all-female Fast and the Furious, which I think the 10th one also kind of maybe sets us up for because there really wasn't a lot of there there with like the women identified characters um, overall. We also meet Elena's sister in the 10th one, which is super fascinating. And then Dom is like, I knew it was you the moment I saw you. And I'm just like, no, you didn't, but it's fine. Um, yeah, I'd really love to hear, I'd love to hear Joe's thoughts about Ramsey. Um I don't know. I feel like Joe's like um, our guiding light expert um, as having seen all the film. Joe's really coming <laughs> correct. I mean, Joe and Madeline both had a really couple of mic drop moments there right? at the end. I'm feeling the need to like steer us toward the genre reveal. But yeah, Joe, no, no, please but, tell yeah. us about, about Ramsey. Lay it on us, Joe. Oh, gosh. What's the deal with Ramsey? What is the deal with Ramsey? <laughs> she's so fascinating. Um, you know, she's a late addition to the franchise and like someone who they've clearly been like trying to like play up as a substantial part going forward but i still but i feel like they're still trying to figure out what she is um and it's a shame because i think she's absolutely one of the most charismatic characters um i think you know the like (laughs) I, I really think that uh, Natalie Emanuel does like an incredible job with her. Like it's a great acting performance. She's like a wonderful comedic counterpart to Roman and Tej, but like deserves her own sort of like sequences. Um, but like, she's also just really underutilized, like get her in a car, get her in more of the scenes, not just providing commentary or like being the person who like, you know, is able to give them sort of like tech knowledge at the drop of a hat. Or that um, they like hit yeah. on every once in a while because it's like, oh yeah, she she's also just stunningly beautiful, of course, which is like, which is yeah, of course. when she's introduced, like that's part like they make that joke like eight different times in that mm. movie that like she can't be a hacker because she doesn't have acne, um, right, and <laughs> yeah, she but, is definitely and she becomes a race though, right between them, yeah. Like it doesn't know how to it doesn't know what to do with women other than that. No, exactly. It seems like exactly. I mean, Let, Letty right? is also a character with real problems in the film, and you know, um, and Michelle Rodriguez has like been really outspoken about the ways in which you know, um, and I think Eighth is the one she really zooms in on. Like the franchise has actually really not served its female characters or its women actors well. Um, like, what has she said? I didn't. I didn't read anything. Yeah. Like do you that. have something? To come up? I want to know. Well, and it's so interesting because, like, if we're thinking specifically of fate, like, she definitely is like a ride or die, and it's like she's hypothetically rewarded for that. Um, but you know, she's like a very loyal, like, very typical one-dimensional female character in that as well. You know. But even so, she gets infinitely more moments in eight than she does in ten. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I, you know, oh, really? in ten, it's like. Why is her name Letty? Because they not lettying her do anything in this movie. Oh boy! You know? Oh boy! Okay. 
Pardon, I, now you're wiggling your eyebrows. You should turn this into a video. <laughs> Groucho. Well, Groucho. I mean, we don't need to go into the hot goss about this or any else. Because I honestly, any of the hot goss seems to me like promotional <laughs> material that gets leaked or something. Or I'm, right. I'm just very skeptical of. I really think that they know that that's part of what they're cashing in on is like, fascination with the crew and their inner dynamics and kind of like a real housewives effect or something like that. Mm -hmm. Right. Like it is like, it is like wrestling, but it's all, you know, in the sense that wrestling is a kind of pretext to reality television or something where they're playing with persona and, and things like that, you know, um, but well, yeah. So yeah. Did you find anything? Well, it's in what's been the case for a while, like from the, the, Michelle Rodriguez has given interviews um, going back to like the first film where she's like made clear that she called for rewrites in that film because originally the script called for Letty to be like a trophy girlfriend for Dom. And she was like, we need to make sure that this relationship is at least somewhat on a peer level. Um, And so apparently she had like a hand in sort of like advocating for that um, as part of, you know, how the franchise was going to deal with women to begin with. In the aftermath of the release of Eight, she apparently, you know, I didn't see this post, but I've read a few things when I was preparing for this episode that, like, referred to it. An <laughs> interview post where she claimed that she needed, like, the next one to do better by its women characters or she was going to leave the franchise. So, like, this was kind of, like, one that, you know, when it was released, she was immediately, like, this is kind of a breaking point for me. Like, there's not enough happening here. Um, And, you know, I don't have to, like, there are moments like in 10 where um, Ramsey is sort of like flexing her knowledge of the London scene a bit more of the, more. She's clearly like in command there in a way that the other characters she's with aren't Charlie's Theron is getting a much more sort of like visible role as like a kind of recuperable hero. Um, but like, you know, Elena's expendability in Fate of the Furious is like something that really like sits with me. Ramsey's like still like unclear role in the thing, even as I adore her as a character is something that sticks with me. Like it is one of the films that is handling its women characters, I think worst in the franchise, even as it is one of my favorite, like it is my favorite in the franchise. Um, And, you know, so I think that, Michelle Rodriguez is right to single this out as like, you know, a breaking point where she would leave if things weren't changed. I hope that they continue to change for the better. I want more Ramsey. I want like more Letty. Um, If we're going to have Mia back, like I want her to have like a life that's a bit more independent of Dom and Brian. Um, I just wish that Letty were a more like, I just, I like, I like, I like what you're saying that Michelle Rodriguez was saying. Yeah. Unfortunately, I just don't find her as an actor to be a particularly compelling screen presence. She kind of has the opposite thing of the other characters where like (laughs) you can train a camera on all of them and they can like be really still and make movements. And Letty is just I, I find her to be like kind of unlikable and kind of strainy. And it just is like. It, it grates on me a little bit. And I wish that weren't the case, but I yeah. Really I, I, I just yeah. wonder because of Michelle Rodriguez's like queerness, if the reason why it's so grating is like she has to act within these confines and boxes and like can't 
can't really like portray the characters like that would be I don't know like maybe like meaningful to her I'm like I'm just like totally speculating but it's like I always enjoyed Michelle Rodriguez's performances and I feel like that has to do a lot with like feeling kind of seen by her as like an actress or kind of feeling like I see Mm. and obviously like identity like we can say like a lot about like liberalism representation in general but I think like there is something kind of to it where it's like oh like I kind of like this character because she is like a canon bisexual woman and like a lot of like the Fast and the Furious like movies and stuff like that and so maybe what is it that you like about her performances though like I'm genuinely curious I'm like genuinely she's so fucking tough yeah I love it I love how tough she is I, I love that she's I'm I'm answering it for you I'm no you sorry, can jump in I'm I want to hear what you have to say, but I'm like, I agree with everything you just said. And I just love her toughness that she's sexy and beautiful, but she's still tough. She could like beat any of us in arm wrestling and like kick our ass. And you just really feel that with her. And she's not going to let down. Like she's, she's powerful. And she's still right? worthy of love. And, I, yeah. and she's still worthy of love of like yeah. Dominic Toretto because she isn't just a trophy girlfriend or a trophy wife. Yes. He's tough as shit. Agreed. Still, you know, because I feel like we're so used to like having trophy girlfriends and trophy women in a lot of these movies. And it's like she can she's tough as shit. She can break out of a prison and then go back for a cipher. Um, she can like I also, you know, I'm, I've been thinking a lot or chewing on like Joe's comment about just like the individuality of every person. Like she drives a motorcycle, you know, like she's like one of the only like motorcycle driving characters. But yeah, I think I like that she's like really tough and because she's so grating but she's still worthy of dom's love and like being like at this like parallel level with him and that she doesn't need to be a digestible character for her to be there i guess is like kind of what i like but yeah Mm -hmm. and she's like you know like hobbs and dom like both have like their intense toughness but like it's mediated by humor a lot of the time like Letty is very rarely funny, and I and I actually like that about her. Mm. Um, like you know, she she has jokes, like it comes in, but like there's a real seriousness to her presence in this film, and like a lot of the other later ones that I that I think you know is is tied to that toughness. And I, as the films have become a bit more sort of like capacious in what genres they encompass as we'll talk about soon um as comedy has become has come more to the fore like i i really like that like letty of all the characters has been the sort of like force for a sort of like continued seriousness and it's Mm. like a continued seriousness that isn't like a buzzkill women can also be portrayed as well like the other side of it because it's like sometimes oftentimes like the or mother figure like is serious and like more of like a tut tut way versus like she's serious in a way where it's like it kind of ties into like uh, like the other themes of like faith and like family and stuff she's like really kind of a pillar in that that familial group whether it's like chosen or blood but yeah she's also the mother to Lil B now um which is like also like another thing um even though I think that's a genuinely kind of family abolitionist motif where like they've like made the point of like seeing if she will accept brian as uh you know a surrogate mother stepmother however you want to see it um and that like that that there's no scene where letty is like dom how could you 
you know, right. like I think that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Okay, I love that, and I also love. I was thinking a lot about this. So this week uh, that we're recording, our episode on Picard is coming out, and um, one of the things that we we're talking about with Michelle O'Brien in that episode is how um, there's like a constant friction, like characters are constantly in these moments where they're having to choose between their ties to their family. And that is like biologically determined or the collective good. Right. And that's like a really interesting mobilizing tension throughout Picard. What I'm (laughs) fast and furious that tension does not exist. Mm-hmm. Like, I love how in Fate, like, we don't see what Cypher shows him on her phone, right? Until much later, we find out, like, it was an image of, of his son, his bio son, right? But, like, the fact that his biological offspring just, like, unquestionably trumps the chosen family. Yeah. You know, it's also the fact that is not a plot point. <laughs> it's just a given. It's also the fact that he just right? intuitively knows that it's a photo right, of just a biological image. child, right? Like presumably it's a photo yeah. of like Elena with a baby, and he's just right. like exactly. He just knows what that has to mean, unless you know she did some like quick text editing with like a little arrow pointing at little <laughs> your son, your exactly. kid, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's that no face like, when episode with the paternity test. Or, you know? He's like, oh, he's like, oh yeah, I tapped it raw in Brazil. Like that's clearly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. So it's this weird thing where it's like, yeah, it because it can have these like strong family abolitionist aspects. Um, you know, it can go really far in that direction. But it's pulled fucking back by this, like, reassertion of the bio family. Like, yeah, and that is, like, he knows, like, in his body when he sees this image that it's his kin, you know, in this paternal way. Like, I I find that to be a very fascinating thing because it it neutralizes, I, I would say, everything that it does that's that's bending towards the queer the the chosen family that's questioning the family form it absolutely neutralizes all of that in fact it may even undermine it i i would say and like ultimately assert this this vision of the biological family that can be kind of like curated and and messed around with with you know an awesome lady or something like that like me like or um Letty, excuse me, but but ultimately, like the bio family has like a kind of hierarchical status over over this chosen family. It's just that they haven't yet ascended to the reproductive family, right? Like they're in this chosen family, but like the horizon is reproductive, and they're going to have babies together and and things like that. And, Although and this is one of the things, you know, this is something. I'm, oh yeah, go ahead. This Joe. is my speculation. But this is something I'm curious <laughs> about. Right? Is like, is how interesting it is that so many of the like the second tier members of the family have to remain single. Um. Well, Randy's like, going to go to one of them eventually. Well, exactly. But like, but you know, but they have to play them against each other. Like Tej, Ramsey, and right, right. 
bowmen all have to like be you know either like seriously with fuck buddies or like single um, sexless yeah exactly well you know what's super interesting and it was the exception with gal gadot unfortunately but like if you caught it in the 10th movie and they're like trying to track them all down well nobody's like i even tried swiping on hans's dating profile like does that mean that there's a bisexual moment there. Like I like to do like a queer <laughs> moment. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I I I liked that too. I was I I really because yeah, when Madeline was even seen it when Han is reintroduced into society um, after he's like come back from the dead, which is to say, being a secret agent. Um, okay. They set him up with a Tinder profile. Uh, <laughs> But it's like it's, it's like so a, good. one of the first things they do in ten. <laughs> oh my god! And he's like getting all these that. matches, and like they're like Tej and like Roman are like kind of salty about it too. Um, but it's like, but it makes sense because it's like Han <laughs> is like you know like he's like oozing that sex appeal, and like I mean like I would swipe right from Han. Um, yeah, of course. Which I'm, I'm trying to insert as much as possible in of case um, in case this to any. In case he's listening. Yes, of course. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Sun Kang is a huge, so, it's but... a huge genre reveal party listener. But we could start campaigning for you. I will say, I don't know if I think that, like, just how I feel is that I totally see your argument, Madeline, but I, I don't feel that the movie completely neutralizes the chosen family thing. And and so I'm trying to think of, I mean, definitely I'm like trying to like prove my own feelings right somewhere, you know, but like, but the way that little Brian is made a part of the family. Like, yes, it, the, the story is driven by Vin Diesel abandoning the chosen family for blood, but ultimately mm-hmm. with the purpose of reintegrating that blood family into the chosen family. So I think there is, I think it is still yeah. a little more complicated than just like, and then this, this, this trumps it. Cause, cause I just, I just really like um, this image I have now of like a slider rather than like a switch uh, from Joe mm. talking about the cops. I think that plays with like every, uh, you know, political or seemingly revolutionary element, individual versus community, anti-cop, pro-cop, mm. pro-nationalist, anti, you know, internationalist. Like it just is always moving. And you- I like that. Or it's, moving, or it's moving to a different scale, right? Like, wait, say more. What do you mean? So I'm like thinking, like you know, part of how it deals with the question of like nationalism and the question of the police is by like inventing like bizarre mm-hmm, non-state mm-hmm. beholden, uh, right? Yes, internationalist <laughs> police organizations, which are somehow not actually like the, the agency is almost not a police force anymore because they don't function to uphold any law. Um, they're like a bizarre counterpoint to Cypher's idea that like, you know, the, the truth of um, the world ought like, to be individual power as opposed to state power. Because um, they even facilitate a prison yeah. break, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? It's yeah. going to turn out that the Sorry, agency is actually run by God and they are his angels. Oh, yes. <laughs> no, but I get what you're saying, Joe. And, and so like, you know, the the family thing, it's 
Maybe this is why this all appealed to my Hegelian friend who I dragged the fate of the furious back in the day. Like there's a continuous <laughs> process of like the negation of the idea in service of it like being reaffirmed at a different level. Um yes. and, and like the family right. has to be sort of like questioned and challenged in order for Dom to come back to it and say yes. that's yes. what yes. I want. Yes. He has doubt to- reinforces faith. <laughs> Well, he also says that in the 10th movie, he's like, you know, fear teaches you and like you learn from it and like you have to lead into it when he's teaching Lil B how to like drift and drive a car, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I am stoked to say thing. that this is easily our longest episode so far. <laughs> and I think to, maybe it might be. You had two guests on there. So, yeah. No, it's great. I think maybe it's it great. might be time to move to the genre reveal. No, no, but I need to talk about penises first. Who's? <laughs> <So, laughs> well, I, I want to talk. Can, to, can you not introduce that penises. in your genre reveal? Okay, I mean, I can talk about penises in my genre reveal, but that the- that seems to imply that you know that that's a part of my reveal. It does imply so. that, and in fact, explicitly states that I have read the part of our document that includes your genre you know reveal. You know what? I'm just curious about <laughs> the penis vibes of everything. I want to bring it back to, before we go to the genre reveal, the the idea of the car as an extension of the body, mm-hmm. you know, in this way. And, and, you know, there is no sex, but, but if we look at these cars as penises, it is the, the gayest pornography I've ever That's, seen yeah. where penises are just flapping on top of each other. And like in seven Statham and, um and Vin Diesel, drive into each other and it's about who's going to be the top and who's going to be the bottom Mm -hmm. and we're just going to drive into each other and our dicks will figure figure it out upon collision so so, so to be yeah so to go back to what you misheard me say when i said that this was a a franchise yes yes, exactly when when i I said that this was a franchise about like when it's okay to be a cop and you heard it as me saying when it's okay to be a top like there's one way there's a different different way to read the franchise which is like the franchise is all about creating a like erotic community of tops for tops Mm. yes yes it is so much except perhaps for and this is to go back to what Dave was saying, except perhaps for Roman, like bottoms do not exist in a way that is compelling in the world of the Fast and the Furious. Um, instead, hmm. what you have is like these intense, brutal odes to like pure top only sex. Um, yes. Which is like the the cars crashing into each other. It's in Fast Five when like Vin Diesel and... Hobbs, The Rock are like fighting each other in front of everyone, and everyone is just like agape watching them like take turns pummeling each other into the cement. Yes. Um, it's so many just like intense sequences. It's even, you know, the like send-off for Brian in Seven is like an incredibly erotic scene when they're like racing each other um along the beach as the music is playing. We have like kind of CGI paul walker in the car and they're racing each other but they're not <laughs> racing right they're like it's the only moment in the film where a race is like portrayed as like mutual pleasure 
um, mm. Vin Diesel and I love you, Joe. Vin Diesel and, <laughs> so true, and Paul yeah. Walker are like going side by side. Neither of them are trying to get ahead, and that's like some parallel play. Exactly, it's parallel play, and that's Paul Walker's goodbye. <laughs> is we have the, like, with, with yes. the song as like Vin Diesel is like, okay, what if we just like we stopped it just a just a little bit before the edge, and we like <laughs> let each other enjoy it. <laughs> They're edging. They're, I was about to say that. They're edging. Well, it's so interesting because oh even God. just making the comparison to wrestling, wrestling is extremely gay. Like, I... I totally. I see Bad Bunny, um, which is, like, I know this podcast is already too long, but, like, they talk about, like, topping in three months. Not too long. I said it was our longest yet, to be very clear. Okay. Not too long, okay? We are unapologetic in our, we're, in our length. We're un- just as the like tops the are exactly movies. yes yeah <laughs> uh, but you know like they talk about like three-man tag teams and like topping each other and all this other stuff and also joe i feel like part of me like also like felt a little like tingle or like a pang in my heart to be like yeah they were driving side by side and it was so beautiful into the sun and like just like mutually and all of that other stuff um yeah i feel like it's interesting because i feel like we talked about how sexless the series is but it's like no th- there are moments where just like you either get it or you don't, you know, like, real mm-hmm. recognizes mm-hmm. real. You'll know when like you see the panel. <laughs> real recognizes exactly. real. Exactly. Well played. Okay, um. Thank you. That totally satisfied me. But like, I did feel to get back to like, yeah, this weird <laughs> Freudian miss, miss hearing that I had talking to Joe last week. I don't think this film or this film franchise is consistent at all about cops. It's very mm-hmm. wobbly. The line becomes basically nothing, right? Um, I think in the beginning, there is a solid line between who is and isn't a cop, right? That's the only trajectory. What it means to be a cop, though, that gets all muddled. It is very clearly, consistently about who gets to be a top. <laughs> and, like, and that that's... Um, you know, really fascinating um, aspect of these films. And um, I don't know. I just wanted to, I, I just wanted to bring it up because I think that is one of the pleasures of watching it is to really experience it in this kind of pornographic way. Um, <laughs> and that's clearly what they know is going on <laughs> about these films, but they can't quite say it. Yeah. And that's important. Um, and that's, that's, that's strategic. Um, so that's all I wanted to bring up. You think Cypher is trying to talk? I brought up penises. We, I like that you yeah. brought up penises. I, penises are great. Well, sometimes. So Madeline, do you feel satisfied to completion about the penis talk? Yeah. Okay. You came from the your conversationally your No, I'm not going to I'm not going to go further with that joke, but <laughs> I'm I'm up to the genre reveal. Well, I, I just want to say one you last know. thing, which is just like one place we see it very clearly that like top energy is essential in the universe of the Fast and the Furious is in um the sequence we get of Hobbs the Rock coaching his daughters um his daughter's yes. soccer right. team. That is such right. a great, yeah. great scene. <laughs> you know, it's it's like it's 
through this like very weird sort of like Maori haka performance, um, we are led to believe mm-hmm. that right, even what 11 12 year old girls <laughs> are ready to like get their top energy out into the world if it is harnessed <laughs> yes. properly yes i love somebody that. literally said i don't want to play and that anymore. is letty and it's like yeah because the top energy has been released yeah yes yes and that it, i want to circle back to letty in in seven when ramsey meets everyone she's like i have you i know who all of you are and she calls Dom Alpha, and she calls Letty Mrs. Alpha. And I love that. I mean, it kind of really holds all the contradictions of, like, the feminist, like, potentiality of that character, and also all of the things that are, like, constraining <laughs> about this franchise, and, like, its inability to be feminist, you know, because, and that does have to do with this weird, like, homoeroticism that it can't quite reckon with either right is like to the extent that letty can be a feminist it's like that she can be a top too right (laughs) like it's pretty it's pretty interesting and complicated while it would not let you think that whatsoever you know (laughs) it's like um very much presenting itself as like a simple straightforward set of of sexual dynamics between these characters that so would you all say we're done ejaculating uh penis and jizz and cum about the penis stuff um I think no but yeah <laughs> none of us want maybe. to say that seems like everyone was kind of loving that so i think, I think maybe we could we're just go with that doing that you know but um <laughs> that was not happening however mm-hmm. no i love i love becoming genres. the villain of my own podcast it feels great <laughs> feels really good just to be a fucking devil um okay let's do let's do the genre reveals okay who who wants to go first madeline do you want to go first yeah i'll go first i'm saying it's pro-terrorist penis allegory why pro-terrorist it's but it's like unconsciously pro-terrorist okay it's like all about like let's like love this like interestingly it came out right before 9-11 the first one right um just a few months before 9-11 but i do think that the franchise should be very much read as a kind of post 9-11 um yeah as a post 9-11 franchise that's like working with the aesthetics of of terrorism and all about like presenting you with the spectacle of these exploding buildings and things like that, but giving you this clean, easy narrative of, you know, somehow no civilians were hurt. Yeah. Always. Right. But it's like, we know you kind of want to watch terrorism anyways. So we'll just like give it to you in this kind of PG 13ified way. Hell yeah. And then you get what I mean by penis allegory, right? You've already demonstrated that. Yeah. Oh, no, I get it. It's like, get I get that one for sure. <laughs> okay, good. Um, okay. So, uh, M or Joe, do you want to go? Do either of you have, have one at the ready? I'll go just because mine in some ways directly contradicts um, Madeline's. What I had written down <gasps> in, in advance of this was anti-terrorist kinship nihilist <gasps> opera. Whoa. 
Uh, Whoa, wow. Joe. So explain anti-terrorist then. Please unpack yeah. that. <laughs> well, I just I, I think that you know it's a film which is like which is so concerned, and this ex- this extends into nine and ten, and like in even in other scales. Um, it's so concerned with what it would mean for someone who wasn't a state actor to have access to weapons of mass destruction. Mm. Um, and it's very clear that like this is, you know, um, the most intense threat imaginable. Um, except, you know, it's also an, like, I, 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 like in some ways I put, I, I put the word nihilistic in there because I think that there's like a strain in the film that goes against that. Because the thing is, is that even though it's anti-terrorist, it's anti Charlie's throne in this movie, even as she's being recuperated later, sticking just to, mm-hmm. um, the th- fact of the matter is that like, even as it's anti-terrorist, Dom is willing to risk nuclear war um, in service of, you know, saving his son um, without any hesitation. And that's not questioned by any of the other characters. The moment Letty or any of the rest of them discover that Dom was willing to take all these risks, he's for the service of his son, he's instantly rehabilitated. They're like, we will have hundreds of millions dead for the sake of Lil B. Um, and like, you know, even as the film is anti-terrorist, it like is very clear that like what terrorists do is actually, if it is mass violence, is actually less objectionable within this universe than personalized violence. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Even, nihilist like, streak, even as it's like it's pro-family, yes. but it's not like pro-humanity. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think our our genre reveals are kind of puzzle piece where it's like together they really getting back to the Hegelian, you know. I mean, I just think that they together illuminate the contra- the like the core contradiction of all of these films. So it's like both pro and anti-terrorist, both pro and anti-family, <laughs> like right in these very bizarre ways. Yeah, but I it's a soap that. opera. I like have no because the soap opera is yes. the genre <laughs> that is like about the encompassing mm-hmm. of everything else, right? For sure. You turn the soap opera. What about you, Em? That's a good question. I feel like I've been thinking about it in two parts because I'm like, there's the overarching franchise, and then there's like this one specific film. So I think um, sure. I mine's not going to sound nearly as well thought out as either of yours, um, but I think what's coming to mind is like. It'll probably sound better than mine, though. <laughs> I was thinking <laughs> pro-capitalism, new Americana, family core penis party, which is penis party. It is a nice. penis, there's some good penis overlap, party. but like I just feel like there's something that feels really American and like Western at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Even though like there is like this international lens, like about the film, because I think it kind of stems back to I think like what Joe and Dave were kind of outlaw like outlining about like this kind of like outlaw but toggles it back and forth between like being pro cop pro not cop and i think within that it's like if you're not staunchly against police or prisons um in any specific way then you're just pro you know the state um and like different parts of the st- or different functions of the state and i think 
it's capitalistic mm-hmm. it's capitalistic in the way where it's like just going back to like it's never going to really take a stance on anything because of its marketability or because it's always going to try to strive for that marketability so i think that's why we see so many overlapping or a lot of themes kind of change or intertwine or flip-flop between the two and then obviously um penis party because as dave mentioned we um ejaculated everywhere or whatever he said but you know that doesn't sound right i don't think i said that <laughs> that's gonna get um off, but yeah. so wait so wait say it, it pro-capitalism americana do, do you I say family no no no. say it again i want to i want to just for my own benefit. i think i said pro-capitalism new americana family oriented penis party Family oriented. Okay, I thought you said family horror, and I was like, "Family oh, oriented a- penis party is a horrific <laughs> phrase." That's actually my band's first album. On that. I love that. <laughs> I really like that. Uh, yeah, that's great. Um, well, I have been tasking myself with with keeping with trying to as- encompass as many ideas in as few words as possible. So I just mine is just existential free fall. Um, I actually, uh, you know, I don't. I went, Madeline and I talked to talked right before recording about how I've, you know, tended not to go into these with one decided beforehand and kind of figure it out on the fly. And so Madeline, when you mentioned uh, the genre of free jazz, I was like, wait a second, maybe that is mine. So I want to encompass that part of just like falling through the, the free feeling fall jazz. Yeah. The feeling of like free jazz fall. No free, just free fall. Okay. It's still my genre. <laughs> sorry, uh, no, no. But, uh, no. but like something about the motion of watching these movies, mm. it feels like a ride. I also want to tip the mm-hmm. hat to the zombie cars falling out of the parking structure but then the existential aspect of it comes from just like truly every foundation of society is just constantly in question. I think like the core contradiction that you mentioned, Madeline, is just a great way of saying like, yeah, these movies are all about like unraveling and then retying and then unraveling and just you have a fucking yeah. messy knot of kind of. It's why there's such rich texts, if I can say so, that, like, people are, like, writing and talking so much about them. It's, like, so much shit is wrapped up in there. And I just think um, this movie, especially those, like, found society questioning questions are really (coughs) uh, clear in this one. Um, I also have a couple of things, just little nuggets that I wanted to mention at the end. Uh, I th- I think it's really speaking of the end. Watching the credits of these movies is an experience in and of itself. If there's anything to be said about the budget of these movies, it's to realize how many towns worth of people are being employed by these movies. I mean, there are like hundred. Th- these movies are like creating jobs in, in an insane way. You know what I mean? So like I and I think that all you, you see just like stunts and there's like hundreds of names. Visual effects, hundreds of names. And I think a, another thing I want to give this movie credit for visual effects wise is like unlike a lot of superhero movies, unlike for my money even the 6th movie with the plane set piece, 
uh, I found it really hard to keep track of the action in that plane set piece. In a lot of superhero movies, you're seeing these things that are so clearly on green screens, like things are flying by and it's so confusing. I think the action is so well directed in this movie because you, as something as simple and easy to take for granted as like where someone is and what things are happening in relationship to them is like pretty much always clear to me in this movie. And so I really liked that. Hmm. And then the other thing that I will say that is both a final shout out to the F. Gary Gray commentary and a bonus for M regarding Tej. One of the biggest things people talk about in this movie is Ludacris's journey from like literally just a guy, a car guy in Too Fast, Too Furious to a fucking Ramsey level hacker over the course of the series. And F. Gary Gray, in a moment when they're when when Ludacris is looking at one of the iPad thingies with the nuclear submarine like blueprints on it, F. Gary Gray is like, you know, uh a lot a lot of people wonder like how how did how did Tej get so how did Tej learn so much about uh nuclear submarines? And there's just a pause and he's like, I think Google. I think he just kind of did his little MIT thing and just you can learn a lot of stuff on Google. And I think over 10 or 12 years, Tez just really uh took himself to school. And then he starts like laughing because he knows like this is one of the most ridiculous obviously ridiculous parts of the movie. And he's just like, Yeah, I mean, I really think it's Google. So for anyone wondering, I believe it. <laughs> yeah, Google Tej is a self-taught Google. Uh, hacker. Yeah. Honestly, I love that. Yeah, right? I mean, like, I believe it. Every single I love that too. Movie, so. And it, I mean, it shows and that I at just... least, like, people, like, uh, this is not the kind of franchise where, like, like, at first you want to be like, they haven't even, this is so half-baked, they haven't even thought about these things. But, like, say what you will about these movies, but people, whether you agree with them or not, they have thought through all the details. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I wanted to say that too. What I appreciate I I love all of these genre reveals in our conversation, soap opera, maybe melodrama or maybe I just am conflating and sci-fi all came up and I do really like how um it just flirts with the edges of that in an action movie. It's like, yeah, of course you're going to suspend um disbelief, you know, in the inter in the realm of the interpersonal and in the realm of the like physical right it's like there's there's these kind of asks and this kind of implicit genre bending that's happening or this kind of agreement that that these these films have with the audience that we're just gonna we're gonna go we don't think any of these stunts are believable like whatsoever and that is absolutely like the thrill Mm -hmm, of it is mm -hmm. that that they are not realistic (laughs) <laughs> that and that we just don't care and I, yeah. and I I appreciate that a lot and um I I just wanted to I I'm glad we didn't like call it a, a soap opera or a sci-fi or things like that but I I liked in the conversation that we're picking up on those those real recognizes real <laughs> well yeah I, I want to say <laughs> Madeline Joe asked me to rank some of the acting performances in this movie. Oh, I'm wondering yes. if you can rank 
each of our performances on this podcast episode to take it. I know where I be- I know I belong at the bottom. So maybe you could just No, I'm not going to do that. You know cuz you know why? Cuz it's not a race. It's not it's not something where there's a winner and a loser and that Are kind you of saying that we're parallel into the sunset and making eye <laughs> We're parallel playing. Okay, that's the friends. perfect ending. We have decided to sync up. We're going to look at each other from this our... This is no 10-second quarter-mile ride. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is amazing. Thank you both so much. This is truly, like, really great. It was really fun to talk to you all. 